So, Ivan, how much of this is your we don't talk about the thing that's changed? Why? What changed? So, Ivan always talks about the fact that, like, if we do something different, we can't talk about it. Because talking about it makes it too obvious. About what? I'd prefer that we go as long as possible without letting anybody know. I mean, I I think it's going to be obvious because, like, my audio is so different. So, right now, I'm not at home. I am in a hotel in Kansas City. Why are you in a hotel in Kansas City? A horse show. A horse show. Okay. You're showing a horse? I am showing it to Kansas City. Whoa. You can't, you can't say, <laughs> this is PG. This is PG. You can't say you're showing a horse to Kansas City. What kind of horse are you showing, Jimmy? A big one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so anyways, I'm in Kansas City. You know, my wife Janice is, is showing a horse here. And the I will say, though, it is the weirdest venue for one fact. Okay, so, you know, you're always at these venues for horse shows. They're not glamorous. Yes, I am. Yes, I am always. <laughs> yes, I'm saying win one, win one is at these horse shows. These venues are not glamorous. They're like, you know, county fairgrounds or state fairgrounds or whatever. And a lot of times they're like these big concrete brutalist buildings that are dark and like warehousey. Horses love brutalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the arenas are all nice, but then like the actual place where the horses are is not not the nicest environment in the world because you have to fit lots and lots of horses from everywhere. And that's fine. It's right by a railroad track. That enough would be like, okay, this is kind of normal. The weird thing is that it's multiple stories of horses. What? Uh-huh. Wait, so, wait what? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so like the usually it's just like one story, but now there's like a ramp that goes up and then like above you think like you're in a car, you know, parking garage. There are more horses up there. And so you'll just be walking around and you hear a horse walking on the ceiling above you and neighing above you. I don't know that I've ever been under a horse before. Mm. <laughs> exactly. It feels very wrong. Like there should not be some uh, uh, a, a ton, you know, 2000 pound creature just like above me. Yeah. Even though it's through the concrete or whatever, it just throws off everything. Because like when you're around horses, you're, you know, you're paying attention to make sure you're not in the way of a horse. Yeah. Mm. And now all of a sudden it's flying. <laughs> It's flying. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Uh, okay. So that's why your audio setup's different this time. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm less echoey than... <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. I, I think actually I got a, it's a pretty nice hotel room in downtown Kansas City, but the fact that it's nice means it's all hard surfaces. Hmm. So it might be a bit more... Bit more echoey. Yeah, bit more, bit more echoey. Bit more echoey than normal, but otherwise, we'll we'll treat this as a normal episode. I think. Yeah, my my setups a little bit different too. Normally, I don't really care too much about it, but I know that Ivan, you do a lot, so I've got to impress you. <laughs> I've got to raise my standards for the future of coding. <laughs> so, what have you done this time that's especially different from how you normally record? I deleted my entire setup. Oh. And then I asked you for the for the template. That that was my whole process from start to finish. But no, normally it has this uh, you know, I did this whispery, relaxing stuff. Which I, I, I did hear you did an episode like that. 
I did do an episode like that. And uh, thanks for throwing it to the patreon.com slash future of coding. Oh, yeah. The most recent bonus episode, if you are a Patreon subscriber, is something I called liminal programming. And it is a recording of me talking in a quiet, gentle voice about visual programming. And it is narrowcast at one specific person uh, because they mentioned on Mastodon that they like listening to my voice as they fall asleep. And so I recorded an audio sleep aid for this one person. And if you want to find out if you're that one person, well, subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> Does the one person that this episode is targeted at, do they subscribe to the Patreon? That would be telling. The answer is no. <laughs> that's, that's okay. That would be like a GDPR. Yeah, that would be a GDPR violation. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. Is it a GDPR, though, since it's no? Ah. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. You can only reveal information. You can't reveal non-information. I'm sure Shannon would have something to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. That, so that's what's, uh, that's what's different with me. Yep. Uh. That makes sense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> this is so cursed. <laughs> I think it's uh, the most important thing to, to realize, though, about this whole thing is that there's this big myth oh. that... This episode was just for one person, but really, like, Ivan just believes this, but it's not really true. It's not objectively true. There's no way to prove it whatsoever. I think this episode was for everybody, but Ivan is just stuck in this myth that only some people care about liminal programming. And that kind of brings us so uh, so coincidentally into the topic of this this episode. You're a magician, Jimmy. What a what a wonderful kind of magic you practice. <laughs> uh-huh. This like beautiful segue about myths and misconceptions. What does it mean oh, to be no. a programming language anyhow? No, I'm breaking our overtalk rule. No. It's myths and myth conceptions. I've been thinking of it as misconceptions this whole time. Oh my gosh, it's myths. I I did too. Myth and myth concept. I actually didn't read it that way. You did read it that way. I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a Freudian slip that worked. Um, yeah, myths and myth conceptions. Myth conceptions. Now I'm going to speak with a mythp this whole episode, <laughs> which is like a lisp, but it's a mythp. So it's a, oh, what would it be? It would be a, a lisp. That's when they accepted M expressions into lisp. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was actually good. That's actually no. was, yes. Uh. The unnamed person is uh, is unimpressed. I'm doing the thing where I'm not saying the name of a thing. There's a thing that I'm not acknowledging by refusing to name it. You mean like like Hest? No, <laughs> not like Hest. Yeah, either's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I either's fine. I, anyway, this is. Should we? Uh... Today we are talking about a paper by Mary Shaw called "Myths and Myth Conceptions." What does it mean to be a programming language, anyhow? I'll start off with in the great tradition of talking about the first page of the text. This one is is not fun. Yeah, let's just skip right over it. I do not understand this first page at all. It's supposed to be like an abstract. Yeah. But like halfway through the abstract, it just starts saying random sentences. That's what it feels like to me. I, like I I sat and tried to parse out the second paragraph of this mm. and what the structure is supposed to be, and I do not get it. I don't know if it's a list. I get it. 
Okay, and that's why I want to bring it up, because I had to just, like, skip over this thing. In fact, I'll go ahead and put out my biases here. I struggle with this this paper. I actually went and printed it out (gasps) and highlighted it physically, because every time I would keep trying to get through it, I felt like I was making no progress, and so I needed something that would show me that I was making progress. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay, I would add, this was a very long paper. Yeah, it was yes. It was pretty long. It was like 40 pages, which for us is long. Oh, yeah. I had the same trouble. I didn't know how far I was through. I was lost. So I opened up the minimap on Teal Draw, oh. and uh, I could see how far down I was. Oh! Uh, <laughs> and um, that did help. That wasn't a, That wasn't a plug, by the way. That was not a plug. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to use my plug laugh. Whenever we talk about TL Draw, I'm going to do some plug laughing. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> For the audio listeners, here are all my pages. Let's see. Uh, yes. Those are some pages. And uh, I'll share, I'll share, you know, actually, maybe this has spoilers in, but I could share the TL Draw room where I uh, <laughs> put, my, uh, put my notes in. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go start vandalizing it the way I vandalize your other TL Draws you send me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So I'm going to read this second paragraph because I think it's a great intro summary to what this paper is about. Go to hell. (laughs) Several persistent... Oh, no, no. It builds off the previous... (laughs) I I made the the face even. Like, I I was like, okay, I want to see how he's going to read the second paragraph when the first sentence has reinforce this focus. Just like completely no, no context. This focus. Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, that context is going to have to be emergent over the arc of the episode because it's too late to go back now. Several persistent myths reinforce this focus. These myths express an idealized model of software and software development. They provide a lens for examining modern software and software development practice. Highly trained professionals are outnumbered by vernacular developers. That is a truth of modern software development, not a myth. Yeah, this is this is confusing as hell. Um, uh, thank you. Right? Okay, hold on. I, I, I want to be so pedantic here because like, this is what I was spending all my time doing. All right, so first off, this whole like refocus, this focus, it's like a bad focus of how we're not looking at software in its entirety and instead just looking at like mathematical stuff or something. Nah. We can flesh that out more, that's fine. But it's like, they provide a lens for examining modern software, blah, 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 colon, highly trained professionals are outnumbered by vernacular developers. Is that the lens? Yeah. For which they... Yeah. Uh, so it, is it the lens that highly trained professionals are outnumbered by vernacular developers? I guess that's the lens because that's one of the myths. No, it's not the myth. That's not the myth. The myth is the opposite. That's, that's the, the truth. truth. Highly trained professionals oh, are outnumbered by. Sorry, yes. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's the truth. It's not even the myth. But then like... And then writing new code is dominated by a composition of ill-specified software and non-software components. So like these are all the truths... So then it just becomes like a big list. Like every sentence from here on has no connection to the prior sentence. It's just statements. But what it is, is each one of them is the summary statement of the major points made by this paper. Yes. And that's what's so confusing is like if they were put in a list format, like especially this is you haven't read the paper and you don't realize like they don't say like we can summarize this as it just starts listing things and it's it would just 
I it took me so long to escape from this first page, just because I I didn't know what that second paragraph was supposed to be doing for me. I think the first paragraph's great, which is sad that Ivan skipped it and that you'll never get to hear it. We'll never. I skipped the whole page. I like I didn't even I I started at the beginning of the paper. I usually don't read the abstract. It's spoilers. <laughs> The second page is so much better. Yeah, let's 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 crush ahead to the second. And I I think actually as far as summaries go, the like the conclusion I think is a great high level overview of what the paper's about. I agree with that. So if we do a bad job of it, listener, then just go read the starting on page thirty six. Read you know what? Just read page thirty six to thirty eight, and that's like that's a great you know you'll get the gist of the paper just from those pages. I feel like we do have to give. We do have to give some sort of introduction here. Like, what is this paper about? To ground the listener. I'll crush that. Okay. I'll do it perfectly. First try, no notes. You know what? Just before you do that. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. <laughs> uh, sorry to interrupt. Page three, I think, is a much better introduction. Okay. Because it is basically a list of the myths. That's what we're all here for, is the big myths and myth conceptions <laughs> in programming. <laughs> So, dear listener, I would recommend going to page three, reading that, then read page two, then read the rest of it. That's my advice. Anyway, carry on, please. Okay, so here's my, I'm not going to cheat and actually read this. I'm, this is coming straight off the dome. So this, this paper, I would, I would propose using it as like a sorting function or like a, you know, like a bucketing function where if you read through this paper and you find yourself going, yes, of course, yes, of course, I know this already. You are squarely in future of coding, you know, community, the heart, you know, you've been fully uh, FOC pilled. You are in the right headspace for what we are and what we talk about. And if you read this paper and you find yourself disagreeing with it, where you say, wait, no, that's not actually how it is. It's this other way. Or you're saying that this thing is a myth, but it's actually the truth or whatever. Or the thing you're proposing is like, it has all these problems with it or whatever. You are not yet <laughs> properly indoctrinated and need to, A, go back and re-listen to all our episodes and, and Steve's episodes of this podcast because that should convince you. But if not, then come into the Slack and, and start <laughs> start some arguments and uh, we'll see if we can straighten you out. Because reading this paper, I felt like I was a choir being preached to. Every point that it made, I found myself going, yes, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. I didn't get a lot of like eye-opening, oh wow, this is, you know, a new thing that I hadn't considered. Instead, it was a whole bunch of like, yeah, that is a really juicy, concise, nice feeling way of, I don't know why I put juicy in there, stating something that I intuitively feel and believe, but don't always have a one sentence tight way of explaining. And so this paper is just full of these like, you know, if you occasionally need to drop a bomb to shut down some Haskeller who's being all like, oh, formalisms are the most important, then memorize sentences from this paper because you can you can throw those down at, uh, and, at like a smoke bomb and, and win the argument. So first, a meta point. Uh -huh. You explained the paper by not explaining the paper. No, I explained what the paper does. The effect of a paper is the, the effect it has <laughs> on the world, <laughs> not the source text. Whoa. You'll know this paper if you already know all of the content in this paper. Yeah. But second, by, by that, I'm, I'm not FOC-pilled, I guess. Oh, no. We have to fix Jimmy. I expected, based on like some of the trappings of this paper, that it was going to be exactly how Ivan experienced it. That it was I was the choir being preached to, 
But I actually had to introduce new notation in my highlights, which is our question mark. Oh. In the same color highlight next to it. And I have it in so many places because maybe I'm just being nitpicky. Maybe I'm just being pedantic. But there are so many statements in here I just didn't understand. I just didn't. That just felt like there's some misunderstanding I'm having of what this paper's arguing for because they just are so incongruent with everything else in the paper. I also had a uh, question mark color this time, which I don't usually have. I did it in a few places, but there's also a a bunch of places where I invented another color, uh, which is for when I'm merely commenting. And I think some of those were things I don't understand, but didn't really want to admit to my highlighter. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a sentient highlighter? Uh, You know, someone's watching. Uh, (laughs) Do you know, it doesn't bode well that the very final sentence of the entire paper is is in my pink, I don't know what this means, colour. Uh-oh. And I read this like three times, and I watched the video. There was a a video? video? There's a video uh, where she presents it, and so I I read this, I skimmed it first, Mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I watched the video, and I was like... Wait, hang on. And then I read it again. So I think I, like Ivan, there is a lot in here where I'm like, yeah, that's obvious. Yeah. But also like Jimmy, I have some things which make me go, huh? Hmm. Uh, wait, what, what, are you, what are you saying here? And like Jimmy, I also feel this is quite a long paper. And Ivan, I would slightly disagree with what you said. I don't think this is how you can drive home some of these points in one sentence. This is how you can drive home some of these points in like 250 sentences. <laughs> like if you really, really want to go deep or not deep, just long. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, it sounds like I hate the paper. I don't, but I just, uh, you know, it was a battle and I feel good to be through the battle. But uh, hmm. Yeah, I, I do think there's some interesting things in here and I'll, I'll give a very succinct summary of what the structure of the paper is, which is Mary Shaw is proposing that there's these myths that people believe. It's unclear to me who those people are, but people believe, and they've messed up programming. And they're myths, not in just the sense that they're wrong, but that they really don't have any basis. And they structure the way we interact with programming. And so we need to overcome those myths. And if we overcame them, we could change programming for the better. That's kind of the general structure here, and we can kind of get into those details, but that's something to be have in mind is I think as the listener, you should be asking like, are these myths and what are the implications of them if they are? One of the things that I do like that Shaw does in this paper is speak to a really particular audience. And so the audience she most often seems to speak to um, or at least the, the, the group of people for whom she says, hey, these myths are, are probably going to have their most pernicious effects are programming language designers. So the people who are in an expert field where they're focused on building the tools that all software developers will do their work on top of, these people, because of these myths and the perpetuation of these myths, focus too narrowly or ignore certain types of programming activity or ignore certain people who do work that could be considered programming if you broaden your horizons a little bit. And in so doing, fail to make the most positive impact with their work that they could if they had maybe 
not been uh, diluted by these myths. So I think I think that part, like the focus on programming language designers, that like really tight focus on audience, is worth keeping in mind as we go through this because that's you know that's who these myths are meant to most directly target. Not you know folks like us who are yes we like to do our weird you know editor experiments and our spatial programming and our whatever i do which is not a thing um but uh it's not that group of people but it's the people who are like like um uh lou and i were at splash um just recently oh no i said your name uh hey hello (laughs) it's me the seal is broken oh boy uh luke and i were at uh (laughs) splash (laughs) last week and that crowd like that i think is the crowd that shaw has in mind for this paper is like the professional and academic programming language designers who are like putting forward, you know, here's the new approach that we're going to take to catamorphisms between abstract data types. This is a, this is a, a talk at Splash that I sat in on was something about catamorphisms and abstract data types. And I, I, brief aside, I sat in on this talk specifically because to me, I don't know any of what these words mean or any of the domain terminology. So I treated it as a 45 minute like abstract art piece. And it was incredible. It was like mm. right at the verge of me being able to understand what they were talking about. Like I knew, I knew, I knew 75% of the words they were using. And it was, it was uh, that beautiful little space like right on the cusp of knowing what the heck anything was about. So highly recommend that those people pull the wool off of their eyes with Shaw's help. I agree with that. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. (laughs) Huge explosion. You know, I, I just want to quickly agree with that and say that me, I might complain and you, Ivan, complain, hey, we know all this already. There's nothing new here. But actually, I think Mary Shaw has probably done the hard thing of writing it out in full, or at least attempting to write it out in full, and get the right people to hear it. So, yeah, it's interesting to come at it from our point of view, where all three of us are already making slightly unusual programming things. This is probably targeted at other people. I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, so where do we want to be? I have some. I have some highlights just right off the top. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's this this bit that's about um, like what even is a myth that I kind of like right from the first page, and I'll just quote: "A myth isn't simply a refutable claim. In its purest form, it's a heroic narrative illuminating the human condition." It can establish a model for behavior and uphold social traditions. Myths have enduring appeal. People want to believe in them, notwithstanding contradictory evidence. This wish to believe elevates a myth from a simple, objectively testable statement to a phenomenon whose appeal and persistence require interpretation. And that's by um, Carly Rae Jepsen et al. 2009. Um, <laughs> Okay, I actually put this in pink, which is, I don't know exactly what this means. Mm. And one of the things I don't know is, like, how does a myth compare to, say, just an abstraction? So, like, when I talk about my computer doing things, it's not actually doing that. So, like, when I say, you know, my computer or my program changes the value or it changes a text string... That's hugely abstracted, even though it's quite simple, from what's actually going on. You know, I'm not going to say, first, it uses the 
move assembly instruction and then it does this assembly instruction and then it does this and that you know so that is kind of like a made-up story i tell myself because it's like it's useful Mm -hmm. but that's different to a myth i maybe it's like a sliding scale yeah yeah i think i think shaw does a good job kind of talking about maybe not quite answering your question on if that's a myth but we could even just say, like, let's assume it's a myth for a second. Let's say you're, you have some statement about how your program works, and we want to consider it a myth, right? Uh, Shaw says a little bit later, The problem is not so much that myths are untrue as that they are incomplete. They should continue to guide us where they apply, but we should be acutely aware of the risk that they're blinding us to other possibilities. And I think this really reinforces this point that you're making, like, Sometimes we talk at levels of abstraction that are good enough. They, you know, they work for most of our cases, and then sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. So maybe we think of variable assignment as happening, and usually it works perfectly fine with the simplified model we're talking about until concurrency comes in. Right. And now that variable assignment was a myth, right? We acted as if it's atomic when it's really not or something. Yeah, And so I think this is kind of the point that, that this paper really makes, is that these myths have some truth to them. They might be abstractions, or as Shaw puts it, they're idealizations. They hold in ideal conditions, but reality is a bit messier. Right. And so, yeah, I do think those abstractions can be considered myths as soon as they're leaky. If they're not leaky, they're not myths. There's a nice sort of um, unifying myth or mythos or whatever you want to say under which all the other myths could be captured, perhaps. And it's, it's one that Shaw presents at the top of page three. She says, Myths are stronger than tacit assumptions. They are embedded in our culture in a way that resists challenge. These myths arose in a bygone era, one that is even more idealized in memory than it was in reality. An era with the belief that Programming is the use of general-purpose languages to create correct solutions to well-specified problems. Programming is the use of general-purpose languages to create correct solutions to well-specified problems. That statement right there is going to get torn asunder. It is like four myths packed into one tight little sentence that uh, Shaw is going to rip to pieces in the next section immediately following this one where she has a nice table of the different kinds of myths that we're going to dig into in more detail, but then also throughout the rest of the paper. So if you two are up for it, mm-hmm. should we read through this table of what these myths are, this high level, like these are the myths? Yeah. Or do you want to get to them as we go through the paper? Because this is just sort of like a like an exploded table of contents. So we could do it either way. I want to know, like, right here, right now, right. which of these you think are real myths and which, you know, like, what's truth oh. and what's myth oh. right now? Yeah. Let's have at it, you know? All right. So I'll put out of the note that I'm, I think we should read through this. That's exactly what I think. But I don't think we should read. So this is a table with myth, say myth, 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 mythos, mythos. I don't know how you should. Say mythos. Say mythos. <laughs> and then say pragmos. Say pragmos. <laughs> I don't know what accent I'm doing. I don't I, think we should read the say pragmos all right. part. We should just read the mythos. The same mythos? Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm down for that. Let's just read the same mythos. So, so 
the the pragmas is like reality, right? Like yeah. the, there's supposed to be the myth and then there's reality. I don't think we should read the reality. We should just read the myth. All right. And let let, let our listeners also think about which ones of these do they think are yeah. are true myths yeah. or reality. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about this paper is that it does have this sense of structure from one myth to the next. Even if you get a bit lost in one of them, then you get picked up very quickly by the next one. Ivan, you've got to do some little myth introduction, right? You know? like I do. Myth number one. <laughs> we could have done that. Top 10 myths. That's exactly. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Top 10 myths of the end of the world. Yeah. That's actually a really good album. Oh. Top 10 hits from the end of the world. Uh, anyways, it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> okay, uh, let's, let's round Robin. Jimmy, since I'm allowed to say your name as much as I want. <laughs> First myth. Programs are written by highly skilled professional programmers. Myth number two. The code is the software. Software is simply the symbolic program text. And those two myths are followed by three purity myths. These three next myths together are, are called the purity myths. And the first purity myth is the myth of mathematical tractability. Soundness of programming languages is essential. Correctness of software is also essential. Thus, formal specifications are also essential. And I think we should skip the last one. Okay, yeah, let's skip the last one. <gasps> it'll be it'll be bonus for the listener if they decide that despite our best attempts, this paper actually sounds appealing. You can go and read it and find out what the last one is. See, that's the thing is like now, you know, despite our best attempts, this paper sounds appealing. Like this was linked so many times in Slack. Yes. So many people really enjoyed this paper. I'm not saying I didn't. <laughs> I'm just saying I struggled with it. Just like the Engelbart, right? Like there's Engelbart is a great paper. Oh, I would much rather read this than the Engelbart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would rather read the Engelbart than this, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would, but I do think that there's a lot in here, and if, you know, if you're interested, you should read the paper. I think all we wouldn't pick a paper if we didn't think it was worthwhile reading. Can I say at this point, uh, like a thing I really liked about this list of myths is the font. Mm. The font mm -hmm. in under the myth column, it's very ye olde English-y. It sets the mood quite well. Let's see if that works out for them. Yeah. This actually, I, 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 you know, I can't, um, this is a great opportunity. Um, welcome to the, let's talk about the design of the paper at the beginning of the paper club. I liked the design of this paper. Um, visually, it was very nice to read. It is not a gross two-column photocopy of a PDF kind of thing. It's, you know, nicely illustrated. It's got these great prints of paintings and lithographs and that sort of thing. I think these are lithographs, some of them. Yeah, the XKCD ones are definitely lithographs. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of XKCD sprinkled throughout here, like four or five of them. Some of them were good. Some of, some of them are some of the good XKCDs even. I mean, it starts with Apollo killing the python. Yeah. Whoa. That classic XKCD post. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite person. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, when the Reddit client killed the programming language. All right. <laughs> so, 
Uh, that brings us to the first section, digging into a myth in detail, which is the myth of the professional programmer. And this section introduces a new term that I quite like, vernacular software developer. So it sets, uh, sets up this, this dichotomy between professional software developers and vernacular software developers. And here's the quote that I'll read setting up that distinction. A professional software developer creates software as a principal occupation, usually for use by others, and has professional training in software development. A vernacular software developer, on the other hand, creates software in a specific context, has principal responsibility in that context, and has professional training, if any, in that context, rather than in software development. The software is a means to an end, not an end in itself. The alternative, oh, and I like this part a lot. The alternative terms end user and end user programming are pejorative. Non professional is misleading. Many are professional, just at something else. I quite like that framing that end user and end user programming are pejorative. I also I feel that way as well. And saying non professional, yeah, that's like, you know, these are professional people. They're just professional in some non-software development domain. So Shaw is going to use the term vernacular software developer to refer to people who have to make software, but they're not making software for its own sake. They're making software to do something, and that's the something that is their area of expertise. Help me understand why end user. I can I can understand why non-professional would seem, you know, not respectful. Like, why is end user programming pejorative? Well, I I um, think that from what I've seen the term end user programming used for is that whatever it originally meant, I think basically what it means nowadays is easy programming. Baby programming. Yeah, baby programming, toy programming. You know, you can't do normal programming, so you have to do end user programming. I mean, uh, have you heard of this guy, Steve Krauss? <laughs> not, not a once. Never in my day. <laughs> He's uh, said some interesting stuff about this recently. He says that uh, with his current uh, Valtown project, he's trying to make it work well for, was it end programmer programmers or something? End programmer programming, yeah. Which I think that was a term of art, at least um, I've seen Steve... Hi, Steve. Uh, credit Jonathan Edwards. Hi, Jonathan. With, uh, with that term. I think, uh, I think that's where that term may have originated. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this idea of like, what if we took some of the nice qualities of end user programming that it's like by design approached very differently from traditional programming, but took that framing, that approach to programming and made tools that were for real programmers like you know actual professional programmers i mean it's quite a funny phrase and programmer programming it kind of highlights that we're not actually using end user programming to mean end user programming you know the, it's it's almost like no it'd be embarrassing to say end user programming you know this is not a toy thing this is real yeah 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 that that captured definitely part of why I think end-user programming is pejorative. I'll throw out another another reason why end-user and end-user programming are pejorative, and mostly focused on the first end-user. There's a, a, a thread of thought that says that the term user is a pejorative term. Um, some people are... <laughs> some people do it on a linguistic um, 
bent where they say, oh, user is like the term for somebody who... Uh, who is addicted to heroin. <laughs> so we, oh, shouldn't, wow. we shouldn't use the term user because it implies like, like that, that term has some stink on it. So uh, we shouldn't apply that term to the people who yeah. get the benefit from our software. Wow. It's hard to get through that explanation without using the term use. We shouldn't use the term use <laughs> anyways. Well, I, I have seen this other, uh, I guess, movement or idea of, People not users? Yeah, I'm on that. I'm on that, yeah. Yeah, you're on that. Was that you? No, I'm on that bandwagon. Is that a intentional drug? I'm on that? Yeah, like- no, I'm, ta- <laughs> I'm taking people. <laughs> That's what I do as a podcaster is I take people. See, I'm in people ops. Uh-huh. People ops. <laughs> Have you not heard? This is the replacement for HR from, from Google, I'm pretty sure, is where the term originates. Instead of, yeah. instead of HR, it's people ops, which is just awful. I'm a PIPX designer. Um, <laughs> I do PIPX. Uh, people interface. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and people experience. I have to admit, like, I don't see how end user versus vernacular feels any different. Mm-hmm. Like, what have we changed in our conception of what these people need and what the solutions are going to be that's different if we use the term end user versus vernacular? Vernacular is cool. But I think it's really just trying to say, oh, and because normal programming's, you know, it's Latin. It's the it's the non-normal thing. Here's another one. It keeps the framing focused on the relationship uh, mediated by the software. So the professional software developer authors the software and the end user uses the software. And because we are looking at the software right now and the process of creating the software, we may intuitively elevate the software developer to a higher status in our minds and the end user is a lower status. Whereas what this is trying to say here is, no, the people who are using the software and who are in fact writing the software in their domain specific area where they are this expert in this other context, like those people are deserving of our utmost respect and our attention. And so by labeling them end user, it's sort of diminishing them in a way that could be avoided if we picked a, a more respectful term. I buy that a lot more. I agree. I, I think, um, you know, end user programming is also, is almost a slightly dirty word. Yeah. Um, and it's a messy definition. And I think she's just sort of said, I don't want to deal with that. Um, I'm going to specify the, uh, the this language I'm using, which is more positive, more respectful. I personally would have gone less respectful to the professional software developers. I Maybe I would have just called those massive nerds and then the vernacular ones just normal people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this reminds me of some like much older papers which talked about like programmer bums and program... Have you, have you ever heard of this? No. I've heard of priests, high priests. You've got to read this paper about programmer bums, okay? And it was it was about, like, the early culture of programming and how it became... And, and I highlighted this word mystique in this paragraph. What did she say? Uh, Shaw says, Part of the reward for this effort, referring to professional software development, is an associated mystique about having mastered the special knowledge. And there's this culture of thinking that programmers are people who just sit away, they, no one understands them, they don't talk to other people, they're programmer bums. They just 
code and then produce correct, perfect software that doesn't have to deal with the fuzzy world. It's right or it's wrong. And so I would have just called them, yeah, massive nerd programmer bums, maybe. <laughs> then again, she's not trying to appeal to me. She's trying to appeal to these professional software developers. So credit to Shaw for finding something that is respectful to everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's trying to appeal to the people who are making programming languages, typically for professional software developers, to convince them that these people ought to be making tools for vernacular software developers as well. And um, it's already come up once in this episode that um, Shaw loves her lists. Um, like the, the abstract had this big list of sentences that seemed disconnected, but that in hindsight makes sense. I love lists too. I love lists. I also love lists. I highlighted a whole bunch of lists. Here's one. Vernacular developers are typically not trained, nor interested in being trained, to use traditional general-purpose programming languages, nor do they necessarily share the cultural knowledge of the software domain or its engineering sensibilities about system integrity, maintenance, backup, and the like. Instead, they use spreadsheets, databases, scripts, web authoring tools, constraint systems, graphic composition tools, macros, and so on. Instead of writing sequences of programming language statements, they write sets of related formulas, develop macros and scripts with follow me examples, formulate sets of interdependent constraints, connect objects in diagrams, and develop user interfaces and websites with graphical tools. So there's your high level sort of like, these are the, the kinds of activities that vernacular software developers do. And what I find interesting in that list is that these examples are all ways that they use the affordances that we've offered them. Like we as software developers, we as the builders of these tools, like spreadsheets, database scripts, web authoring tools, constraint systems, graphic composition tools. Those are all like things that I've seen people do PhD theses about and, and give presentations and write papers and make cool prototypes and all that kind of stuff just to like get one of these things, you know, one increment better or like get it on the table, get it out there into the world in some way or another. And like as a personal example, like constraint systems, I recently joined Ink and Switch as a researcher on the Ink track. I don't think I've mentioned that here, so... Oh, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Um, that's that's the only big change that has happened recently around these parts. Um, hmm. And uh, <laughs> uh, so it, part of what we're working on involves constraint systems for vernacular software development. And I won't give more detail than that, but this this really resonated with me because it's like, yeah, clocked, right? Here I am as a as an author of tools for quote-unquote non-professional software developers and I'm using exactly one of these things and so it's it's interesting to me to think about how would we make this list bigger how would we put more things in here how would we take the things that are in here and make them richer how would we turn actual professional software development tools like C++ or Rust or Postgres or whatever and turn those into things that feel more like constraint systems or graphic composition tools. I think there's just like a lot of a lot of fun stuff you could play with in this in this little space that that Shaw has carved out. Yeah, and I think I think with this section we get not only this picture of vernacular programmers, but the fact that they vastly outnumber the professional programmer. 
this professional programmer myth that a lot of people are spending their time doing these things that by most good definitions of programming, Shaw would say, are programming. You don't have to be using a traditional language to actually be programming. And so we have this whole group of people who are doing tons of programming, most of the time not using a traditional language, a traditional programming language, and yet they don't get any support. They have to spend all of their time in these tools that weren't really designed for the tasks they're trying to accomplish. I have a buddy who's a, a environmental scientist who is now learning traditional programming. I think I've mentioned him before. And the reason is, is like spreadsheets just stop being useful for the kinds of things he was doing. He got to a certain scale and he talked about his like workarounds of crazy intricate, like, oh, well, I make spreadsheets for all of these different things and I have gigabytes of data that I'm trying to process through spreadsheets. And his only answer was even to like go get a master's degree or something and go learn data science stuff. And that that is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, this paper really wants to point out that like that isn't the way this has to be. The reason these people have found themselves in this position is not because they're unsophisticated, because they don't lack knowledge or anything. It's because the tools they've been given don't support the rich things they are capable of the rich ways in which they can think about computation. And I love this. Uh, there's an example. Like It talks about uh, researchers where we had this well-known bug that had happened all because of a difference in how uh, files are ordered on file systems between operating systems. I think this is a great example where people had built all these, these tools for scientific computing that depended on things like order matters. And for some reason, the systems we've built don't even help you guarantee those kinds of constraints. And so, yeah, I'll buy, I'll say I'll buy that vernacular might be a better term. Um, I still think end user programming is not that bad, but that's okay. I'm curious though, do people believe this myth? Hmm. I, I just, I like, there's two ways of saying a myth is wrong. There's, that it's not true. I think it probably is true that people who, you know, vernacular programmers outnumber programmers. Yeah. But is it really the case that, like, this myth is believed by a lot of people? Do a lot of people think that programs are written by professional programmers and that that's why they're building all of these formal tools? I just don't buy that. That's true. That's, oh, you convinced me. You've convinced me. I don't think that, I, I don't see how this idea, even in its like subconscious form, is what is making people not build these tools for vernacular programmers. I don't think it's that people think, oh, yeah, there's just so many more programmers, or that this is what programming means. I think there's other reasons why people aren't building these things. And I think it's around incentives. I think it's around yeah. how academia is, right? I think it's around what can get published, et cetera. Like that's, that's where, that's why I'm saying like this paper, I think makes a lot of good points. I just don't understand what the argument is here for this myth. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Maybe it's the, well, everyone knows that there are, plenty of vernacular software developers out there. It's just no one cares about them. 
<laughs> yeah, or the kinds of people who care about them are the kinds of people who self-select into CHI slash HCI, like human-computer interaction stuff, or who self-select into, you know, working on spreadsheets, which at this point are like pretty heavily productized more than the domain of academia. Um, though you get a little bit of overlap there with things like state charts. State charts still feel like an active area of academic research that are, to me, related to spreadsheets, like in my mind. But even then, like state charts seem to be something where the ink has not yet dried on whether those are tools for serious professional, you know, the Jonathan Blows of the world, the people who take themselves so seriously as a programmer that like garbage collection is something they like snort at uh, <laughs> or if it's a tool for the people who are not even aware of what garbage collection is right so where where that technology ends up going tbd but the fact that we can kind of clearly see oh yeah there's the people in the world who don't garbage collect and there's the people in the world who like just assume that all programming has garbage collection in it because all the tools they use are you know that far away from the metal and that you you sort of specialize into, you know, working at somewhere higher up or lower down in that stack. Like it feels like the thing that's missing here is maybe cross-pollination between those camps. Like maybe the the people who spend a lot of time working on like machine instructions or compilers or that sort of thing, the, the Jimmy Millers of the world, and the people who spend their time working on abstract graphical constraint based rule system things the uh the uh ivan wilson's of the world <laughs> um, ivan wilson well how do how do we portmanteau our names uh L leuven <laughs> the leuvens of the world i like that that's good the leuvens of the world i ship it yeah 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 and then we'll need to figure out okay when Jimmy and I are in the same camp on something and not Lou, that would be the... The Jivens. The Jivens. <laughs> and then when Jimmy and Lou are in a camp, what is what is that? That's the Limmies? The Lumi? The Lumies? Limmy? Limmy. <laughs> Why? There once was a Limmy from... <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a Limmyrick. <clears throat> oh oh dear okay all right <laughs> so the the thing jimmy was saying i do see that there is a a self-selection if not like institutional slash incentive driven motivation for people to specialize in a way where they're focusing on vernacular developers versus professional developers i do see that happen i meet people and they say yeah i do this and that and that and that and i say have you thought about this other category of people who could benefit from that skill and they say no like the catamorphism talk that i sat in on as an abstract performance piece right <laughs> one of the people in the audience had a question at the end of the talk where they were like, have you thought about this other interesting way to use this idea that you presented? And the person giving the talk who was like very like stern, suit and tie academic, like, you know, devout professional, like, I don't want to say joyless, <laughs> but um, this person who's <laughs> like, who's like deep in it, they were like, no, I've never thought about that. And I don't see why you would. <laughs> <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. they have so square peg in square hold themselves that considering applications of their ideas outside of the main domain that they've selected into is like 
is a foreign idea and an unappealing one at that. And so I think that is that is the audience of, you know, programming language designers that Shaw is targeting is those people who are like, mm-hmm. you know, I only work on incremental improvements to C compilation, uh, you know, in this one particular way, that sort of person. I want to give one more angle on this same thing, and maybe I'm pigeonholing too much on this myth, but like, <laughs> I also think you can look at this from a totally different angle that vernacular programmers have had a lot of resources poured into their work. It's just that all of that work has been captured by commercial entities. Hmm. So think about all of these. There's all sorts of ETL processes. There's all sorts of tools out there where you can spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to have your point and click ETL process. There's, you know, Microsoft who's put Copilot into everything now. There's been tons of work poured into how to make Excel do everything that you want it to do. I happen to work at a company that builds things that lets random people customize all of their help desk software, right? And like I am working on something where the new track that we're working on is is actually called Pro Code. It's supposed to be professional coders uh-huh. working on this stuff now. And and the way that these has been seen is like that everyone who's been building out these systems beforehand were non-professionals. And yet there's millions of lines of code written in these systems that for non-professional programmers. If you actually look at it, like I talk to people all the time who work with these tools that are specifically designed for vernacular programmers that are not geared towards software engineers, like their way they're sold is, hey, you don't have to go borrow those programmers over there, you know, the software engineers over there, you can do it yourself. Retool is a startup that's, you know, in this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it's really the case that they haven't had much, you know, thought to put into these things. It hasn't been, you know, really people are ignoring it. It's just that their needs are very different from what academics explore because most of the people who are doing this work don't have the freedom to choose the tools that they want. This is the negative part that I'm saying. Like this is the incentive of why it is, is they're stuck with these commercial tools that their company imposed on them rather than having the freedom to explore these kinds of things. So like I agree with the goal, like we need to make vernacular programming better. We need to make it more expressive. We need to let people do more of these things. But I just wonder, like, is it really that we need more academic research poured into it? Or is that we need to change some incentives and structures where people have more freedom to choose these tools? Hmm. I, I guess, like, this is the thing that I just found. I just found this section unsatisfying. And I know it, it's not a standalone section. I know we get more into stuff as we continue on. But I just want to put these thoughts out there of, like, are these the right myths for us to be focused on if we want the goal that Shaw wants? Mm-hmm. I want that goal. I don't know that this is the path. Busting these myths, Mythbuster style, is the path to get there. <laughs> and you're saying you would choose a different set of myths? Yeah, yeah. I, I did not make a list of my myths. Oh. I wrote down three myths. Whoa. Coming in with the homework. I I mean, like, you know. This is all I care about now. This is my whole world. What, they're three myths? Yeah. No, oh, no, I don't think we should do them now. Oh, okay. So so Jimmy and I have until the end of the episode to... To come up with some myths. ...be entertaining conversationalists and to come up with our own lists of uh, <laughs> myths 
at the same time. Okay, so my yeah. first one is... I mean, I might add another one. I've been convinced by Jimmy. Podcasting is the <laughs> dominant uh. modern medium for artistic and informational expression. Myth number two. The code is the software myth. Lou Wilson <laughs> is an incredible human <gasps> being that's a myth that's not a myth listening to their toad pond <laughs> podcast should be required as part of the elementary school curriculum that's not a myth that's true <laughs> that's true <laughs> uh, well see ivan's just doing that thing where he inverts the meanings of things like considered harmful uh, dykstra <laughs> and then myth oh yeah it's a callback yes it is uh-huh by the way can i well i feel like we should give this first myth like a, an official seal oh yeah 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 does this get the that is a valid myth and worthy or or mythbuster style would be busted uh is it proven and then plausible and Flophouse style would be, is it a good, bad myth, a bad, bad myth, or a myth we kind of liked? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I'm not well read enough to do myths chat. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> I think this is plausible. Yeah, I think this is a, a myth I kind of liked. Plausible, maybe if we nitpick, there's some things, but let's not do that. You know, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for this myth. And just uh, to to further counter Jimmy in 20 seconds, Shaw includes a couple of examples of uh, things that vernacular software developers do that could use uh, some help from the tools and, and, and work of professional programming language designers. So for example, there's um, a character named Frida who has to take a spreadsheet that comes from her company you know, high up in her company that's about preparing some annual report or whatever, and she has to customize it to her department. And so each year the company sends down the new spreadsheet with the new format or whatever, and she has to look at the new company spreadsheet, last year's company spreadsheet, and her modified department-specific version of the company spreadsheet from last year, and try and like you know, CRDT those by hand together into the new format spreadsheet just for her department. So like trying to figure out all the deltas that have happened and put them together. And that's that's the sort of thing where, hey, I referred to this as her manually CRDTing them together because uh, CRDTs are good at that kind of thing, right? Like, and, and Git is, well, terrible, but something Git-esque might be good at this kind of thing. And so yeah, wouldn't it be great if if uh, if we could, you know, put CRDTs somewhere where Frida could benefit from them? And Frida's not just a character. Frida is a real person. Yeah, there's like a stick figure drawing and everything. She's real to me. Well, it says, Frida is a real person interviewed for that study. <laughs> so this was a real example. Yes, and there's an actual stick figure drawing right there that I'm looking at with a circle and some lines, and it's real to me. I don't know why you, you're <laughs> de denying me the reality of this person, Jimmy. But are numbers real? <laughs> well, no, no. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Is the sentence, Frida's a real person interviewed for that study, is that real? It's in the example. Like, it's part of the example. It's not outside the example. I can't... I, Myth number two. Myth number two. Myth number two. <laughs> bum, ba, da, bum, 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 bum. 
The code is the software myth. The code is the software myth. Historically, program was pretty much synonymous with software. The mindset was that software systems are big programs constructed by compiling together smaller program modules, which are written in the same programming language and interact through precedence calls. Procedure calls. Oh no, I got it wrong! <laughs> Alright, I'll do it. I will do all readings. <laughs> I will do them flawlessly. This is it's quite, quite long words in there, you know? Yeah. Oh, I, I, uh, people on the, on the grade school schoolyard called me data because I liked to use big, long words and I still like to use big, long words. Procedure calls. There, I fixed it. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, data was incidental. Debugging involved direct interaction with the schoolyard kids. Maintenance was a necessary evil driven by being beaten up every day at lunchtime. Documentation was missing or viewed as stinky. The behavior of the program depended only on explicitly taking the children outside and shaking your fist at them sternly. Libraries and the underlying operating system, which changed only with explicit detention of the programmer. Lou has in their highlighting a color. Oh, it's spying. That is reserved for Ivan will have something to say about this. And I scrolled through their PDF mm. that they shared with me to find, hey, wait a sec. There's a section here that is highlighted as Ivan will have something to say with this. So Lou, what 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 do I have to say about this highlight that you've got? Well, there is a clear distinction between a program and a system. Right, so like a program is maybe like a something you run, something goes in, something goes out, or something goes in, lots of things come out, whatever. A system is, well, actually it says, a software system is a composition of programs and other resources, including possibly databases that provide a computational service. It is created by software developers using some kind of software development environment. It differs from a program in scale, in scope, and in the developer's responsibility to the user's of the system. And I know in the past you have mentioned about the difference between a programming language and a programming system. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some parallels here. And, and I, think, I think there's this acknowledgement when you refer to a system or when we talk about a system, there's this acknowledgement of this system is not just a thing that exists in a vacuum in like a hypothetical world. No, this programming language or this tool or this application exists in the real world and there are some fuzzy edges where this touches and affects the real world and vice versa so maybe it has to cooperate well with other programming systems or programs maybe it has to um, work well with like real people using it maybe it has some data sort of embedded in that might change over time because our world changes for for me this also relates to Robust first computing, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Heck yeah. So Time to actly <laughs> on this episode is one hour, 40 minutes. <laughs> All right. But this is literally what Dave Ackley talks about with this concept of robust first computing, where when we make a program, it's not just a program, it's a system. We can say that it's in some ways comparable to a living system where over time it changes, it might need to react to changes, it might break and it might need to repair certain parts of itself. And I think this is basically saying the same thing. When we make a program, 
it's usually part of a system. Mary Shaw mentions like documentation or like what platform it's running on. Yeah, I, I'm I'm all for that. The sort of when you code something and you put it out there, you don't just forget it. It's part of the a bigger changing world. There's a um a wild thing that she says at the bottom of this section that I highlighted specifically, and I'll work down to it. So this the thing that Lou had highlighted saying, oh, Ivan might have some thoughts about this, mm-hmm. is, is part of a little sidebar. And so the sidebar makes three points, or it introduces it, definitions for three terms. And the first definition is a program, which is an executable definition of a calculation that accepts variable inputs. She goes on to say a little more about it. The software system, which Lou has talked wonderfully about, which is this composition of programs and other resources, data, et cetera, et cetera. And this third one is a software development ecosystem is a comprehensive software development environment. So we're talking about the development of the software, not the actual like, you know, running of the software system or the program that you built, but this is the the ecosystem of developing software. It includes tools, languages, libraries, interface standards, and other resources that support software developers. The software system may run in an equally rich execution ecosystem. I love that term. Oh my goodness. Execution ecosystem as opposed to development ecosystem. That is extremely my jam. That is like, I am, I'm the jam boy for this idea, is that there is a, <laughs> there is a, an ecosystem in which you develop the software and a separate ecosystem in which you execute the software. And that is something that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about except in maybe a very narrow way where I think about like, oh, how portable is this binary? Is it, you know, the kind of thing that is fat or universal and I can run it on some other architecture? Or is it, you know, cross-platform? Will the same binary run on Windows and on Mac OS and on Linux? Or, you know, is it compiled just for, for one of those platforms? And, you know, is the source code written in a language that is portable so you can compile it on, you know, Unix or compile it on on Windows or what have you. And then, you know, it runs on that platform it's compiled for. That's, a, to me, a very narrow way of thinking about this execution ecosystem, where I think a bigger way of thinking about execution ecosystem is like starting to ask questions about, like, what does it even mean to execute code? And so that, like, Ackley, you know, example, like... Dave Ackley's, <laughs> the things that he builds execute in a very special kind of environment where it's like, oh yeah, this this thing that I made executes in an environment that is this large tiled grid of, you know, subdivided screens that is spread out over the wall in this building. You know, it involves a definition of hardware in a way that is, you know, you need to define it quite quite. Um, in quite a lot of detail because it's so different from how we normally conceive of a, you know, a computer. We might think of, you know, a desktop or a laptop or a phone or something like that. Dave's over here thinking like, yeah, I want my my software to be able to run like as an organism. And so I need to create like a, like an actual ecosystem for it to run inside of. And what would happen if you like cut your computer in half while it was running? Can you build your software so that it just keeps running even though you've just like cut it in half, that sort of thing. So I think it goes even further. Even further. Yeah, what you've described is this T2 tile project. It's like a indefinitely scalable computer architecture. 
that uses a whole like completely different set of priorities to our current computers. But that is work done by like Dave's organization, which is I think just Dave basically. But like <laughs> you know, but you know he he's he's a he's a good guy. So you know he does a lot. You know, Dave counts as three people, right? Anyway, mm, yeah. It's from the Living Computation Foundation, which presents like a, a different way of thinking about code, which I think really um, is relevant here, because there's this concept of we ship code in so many different ways, in so many more places than than is currently assumed. So when I say like we ship code, that's often referring to you know pushing some code from your development environment into production, but actually. We're shipping code every time we make something run in our development environment. We're shipping code when we put an example on a doc site. That code is being run by sometimes a computer. Sometimes someone's just reading it, and that that code is is like having an effect. It's like a very different way of thinking about it. But I think the important thing is that there's this acknowledgement of the. Larger ecosystem around something, and you know, if we are only focusing on making one program run well in one specific constrained environment, that's not so useful as thinking about the whole ecosystem. Yeah, I think this is something that Shaw is definitely absolutely right about the reality here that software is more than just a singular program text. I think. Anyone who's been working in, like, especially if you've been at a big company, but in general, I think modern software engineering outside of like compilers, this is just the reality you're faced with constantly, right? You realize that you can't make a change to this API because of code that exists not even at your company depends on the fact that that field is there. And like, that, that is nowhere. There is no text that you have access to that tells you that. It's this kind of implicit behavioral specification. There's all of this data that you have to migrate. There's all these users who use your system in some weird way. Like the constraints on what your code can do depend on all of these other factors. And so you realize like my software that I'm doing is not just this code I'm writing here. It's the concurrency mechanisms. It's that database. It's Kafka. It's blah, blah, blah. Like I think I think this is just a reality that's really faced. And I, I do think there's an argument to be made that a lot of academia ignores this reality. Now, there are some great works that I do think like you know, try to do this where there's systems trying to let you program at a higher level of abstraction, think about concurrency as a first-class entity, which is something that Shaw points out here. Modern languages don't let us do, let us express this, but they are a little on the fringe. They aren't kind of the mainstream thing, and there's a bunch of things interested in, like, the formal semantics of a single language rather than thinking, how do we deal with this massive system that we're confronting? How do we, I think Jonathan Edwards has really interesting things along these lines. Like I said, you know, a little on the fringe. I think Jonathan Edwards would be fine with me saying that, where it's like, you know, how do we do data migration, right? How do we handle schema change over time? How could we have something that lets us really think about program evolution? And that, I think, starts getting at these systems and how they evolve across time. So I think this one, I mean... When we were talking about the reality, I think there's no question. Software 
is not just a program, and it hasn't been for a long time. I think it hasn't been probably since the IBM 360, at least. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a much com- more complicated thing for a while, and, and Shaw recognizes that. This section, though, is pretty chunky. Like, we got, yeah. we got a lot here. So we got this kind of first section of, like, the code is the software myth, which kind of introduces some of these concepts. And then we get a split where Shaw says this myth plays out differently for vernacular programmers and professional software developers. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of got this, like, professional software developers, I do think there's some weird things in here, uh, but I'm just going to skip them and ignore them because I, I don't need to nitpick stuff. I think this is is is, is spot on. I, I mean, we can comment on the professional one if there's things that you all want to pick out. I think you mentioned, like, when you talked about layers, Shaw mentions the sheer number of layers that professional software developers have to deal with when adding something to the ecosystem. They're not just adding it to avoid. There's uh, two good lists in uh, in the section talking about how the code is software myth uh, manifests when looking at professional software developers. One of them is that modern software is made up not just of code in a single programming language, but also of code in multiple languages, supporting technologies, large data sets, synchronization for distributed execution, interface policies, scripts, real-time data feeds, dynamically selected components, automatic unannounced updates, and so on, much of which is not addressed by mainstream programming languages. And then there's <laughs> there's another list, which is... The elements that are incorporated in the software may come from ad hoc, untrusted, unstable third-party sources... They are underspecified and may change their behavior without notice. So she does do a little bit of um, uh, discussion about the sort of the question of like a, a secure software supply chain, wanting bill of materials for software that that comes up in this section if you're familiar with those themes. Uh, another list. Software developers must scrutinize configuration parameters, wrangle APIs, set up data and communication protocols, manage the third-party bits, including the vagaries of unannounced changes, and generally worry about which bits not under their control are going to go awry next. Love these lists. Shaw, great at list writing. Make me very happy. You're so good at reading lists. Thank you. Uh, you didn't have to put the word list at the end of that sentence. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's the next section, which I think we have more interesting things to say, perhaps, which is, uh, it's so we looked at how this myth that the code is the software affects professional software developers. Now we get to look at the vastly more numerous vernacular programmers mostly use tools other than general purpose programming languages. So the myth that the code is the software breaks down with vernacular programmers because they're not writing code. They're doing other stuff as part of their programming. And so if you are convinced that the code is the software, therefore, you know, we only need to focus on code-related concerns... Well, you're wrong if you care about vernacular programmers because they're not writing code in general purpose languages. They use a variety of tools and notations, including spreadsheets, scripting, data schemas, markups, domain-specific languages, visual web development tools, and scientific libraries. Many of the tools don't represent the software as a static symbolic text. Software development may involve progressive tailoring of a system, collection of formulas and constraints in spreadsheets or CAD systems, or visual programming. So we are way outside the realm of 
the text code is the software. Now the software is something wildly different. It might even be visual programming. Thoughts on this section? I will just put in a note that I do now have my list of myths. So, oh, uh, it, it nice. Is, yeah. I, and, and they're, they're real, not weird things that Ivan wants to list out. Uh, so I do actually now have it, <laughs> now that we've gone through. Uh, Ivan, you, you read enough lists. I read Sorry. enough <laughs> lists that Jimmy had covered to zone out and come up with some goods. Um, so I, I think <laughs> this is interesting. Lists considered harmful. Dykstra. I think it's weird the way that this myth is breaking down between professional and vernacular because, you know, for professional, it was supposed to be like, oh, there's so many more things other than the code. Mm -hmm. And vernacular, it seems like it's like, it's, well, the program isn't the code. And I guess I don't see why there needs to be a difference here because some of what vernacular programmers do is code. Sure. Spreadsheet formulas is code. Yeah. I I think there's just, like, definitively a, a classic you know, functional programming language. It's just put inside of a cell instead of in a, in a text file. Um, but I think it, I just don't see why this needed to be that different because I think what professionals do that's not code is very similar to what vernacular programmers do that's not code. Really, I see the distinction as just which kinds of tools that they're using. Generally, professional programmers don't like a lot of the tools that vernacular programmers use. Yeah. And whether they like them or not is is a different question. But they are using these things and programmers often, even if they could get benefit out of using those tools, there's kind of this cultural, no, I would not use that tool. Yeah. And and there's there's sometimes good reasons. Maybe they're proprietary, maybe they're whatever, but they're often just not using those tools. Why I was a little confused on this difference, I think even Shaw points it out here, it's claimed that there's kind of this maybe maybe a difference in working and uh, how people work. And I'll, I'll read kind of, I'll try to read and see if I can not fail at reading because I'm not as good at reading as Ivan is. Lists or just in... <laughs> Sorry, reading lists. Um, lists, yeah, lists. Reading lists, yeah. Yeah, 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 reading lists. Ivan's awful at reading anything other than a list. <laughs> it's usually just me doing my Ivan impression. That's why the radio voice was added in, so you wouldn't notice that it was me doing an Ivan impression. What? Uh-huh. No. Yeah, absolutely. No. Um, so no. So this is this is on uh, page two hundred thirty-four colon twelve. I don't actually know why. Page twelve. Yeah, yeah, but why is it two thirty-four colon twelve? Any idea? Because this was published as part of a longer journal, and so it's page twelve of this article within the longer journal. There were two hundred thirty-four articles. Yeah, it's the ACM Programming Language Volume 4, oh, wow. uh, Hopple, Article 234. Article 234, not in that... It's not, sorry, it's not that there were 234 pages, it's that this is Article 234 of, in this yeah. Procedures of the ACM I wonder if that's across language. all volumes or that volume. Anyways. Um, I don't know. <laughs> all right, so. <laughs> it isn't especially important for these tools to support programmers who are developing the software as a way of understanding their problem. So this is about vernacular programmers. So they're trying to understand their problems or the ramifications of their decisions. People who are using software to work towards a specification rather than from one. Programming in this exploratory mode involves getting feedback on whether initial ideas accurately capture the intention 
then refining and extending the results to achieve a satisfactory program by progressive approximations while refining their understanding of their real intention. So the idea here is this is like, you know, you're continuously developing what is the problem that I'm trying to work through. I don't really have a specification. I'm not really sure where I'm going, but I need to get feedback and see, is this the correct direction? Is this fruitful? And Shaw adds that, you know, this is, this is talked about as a conversation and that many professional programmers work this way. But it's especially prevalent in vernacular programmers. I just I don't buy that this is any distinction here. I I think that there are I have not thought of a single instance where what I'm doing in programming is not working through in a conversation with the code, with the system, what kind of problem I'm working on, what solution will work. I'm almost never working from a specification, even when I'm talking about like a compiler, like, you know, I'm working on widget for Ruby. Like, yes, there is a specification in some sense. It's what C Ruby does. And yet it was still this conversation back and forth. Will this optimization work? Will I be able to implement it in this cer certain way? I, I just think this is how programming is. Yeah, and it might be that this the reason that she's introducing this idea here is just because she needed to introduce it at some point and it just naturally flows here and not that she means to say that this doesn't apply to professional developers equally as much. <laughs> There's a weird sort of like, ah, uh, yeah, no, we can't let vernacular developers have something that <laughs> professional developers also deserve to have, <laughs> which is exploratory programming. Yeah. The biggest thing that pops out to me from this section is kind of what Jimmy mentioned earlier about all these examples of vernacular programming. They sound like closed products or systems. So like one of the examples is like a geometric tool for, I guess, constructing diagrams for a variety of reasons, architecture, mechanical engineering, mapping. And I can think of some of these tools that I've seen they're often something you pay a subscription for. The things you make in them are stuck inside them. You can't take them out and put them into another mapping tool or whatever. You're stuck there. And Figma is like this. You know, I would say Figma is a form of generating CSS and other stuff. Like, I've copy-pasted CSS from Figma, and, and I'll do it again. <laughs> you know, I... I <laughs> Like Figma has been like a very high level way of generating CSS for me at times in my life. Um, but like, did you see Devine's talk at Strange Loop? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was super good. Devine mentioned how some of these systems like Figma trap you, you know, they trap these vernacular uh, software developers. You don't get good at designing maps or architecture or diagrams, you get good at Figma. And this is what I worry about when I see this difference that Shaw mentions. All of the professional software developer examples were, th were things that were very customizable, things that they could be in control of, things that they could take stuff out of. All of these vernacular software developer examples seem like products, seem like SaaS products. That's a great... Um 
thing to capture because Shaw gives a ton of examples of things that vernacular developers are missing out on that professional software developers have, like programming language design principles such as precise syntax, abstractions, encapsulation, scope, and clear denotations. But you're bang on that there's like a whole other outside the text of the code, outside thinking of the code as the thing, but looking at the broader ecosystem, differences between the way that programming tools are offered and the substrate that we get to build on top of and the materiality of the things we build versus what vernacular developers have as their material and their substrate and their environment. The software development ecosystem and the execution ecosystem differences here are, um, yeah, are, are quite, quite interesting. I think, though, the reason that these vernacular programs lack these things like precise syntax abstractions, encapsulation scope, and clear denotations are because they're built by industry. Yeah. They're built that I think this closed source nature of these, these proprietary nature of these systems is why we have a lack of these things because the way we develop software in industry is not conducive to these kinds of problems. I mean, if you look at, I'll, I'll use like, like Salesforce, I've never written in Salesforce's programming language, whatever it's called. I have no idea, but I know they have their own and I know there are people who have to code in it. And from everything I've heard, it's not great. <gasps> um, another one that you could give example is like mumps. <gasps> uh, mumps was a, a medical software, you know, programming language, right? It was a, for databases. That's an awful <laughs> name for a medical software. Yeah, why did they call it mumps? <laughs> or no, I think it wasn't medical originally. It was just databases, but the medical community took it up, right? No way. Yeah, yeah. So mumps is used by Epic which is like the largest uh, electronic medical, medical records system in the United States. Wait, not Epic Games? Yes, not yes, Epic Games. Not that Epic, the other Epic. <laughs> okay. And, and it's, a, it's a crazy language from everything I've heard. I've seen a bunch of the code, but I've never had to write it myself. And it doesn't follow a lot of these things. I mean, you could even look at like earlier JavaScript that was produced as a marketing effort and it you know was forced in these timelines and it didn't have clear semantics as as good as it could have it didn't have lexical scope right etc this is what happens is that we we push these things out the door based on marketing efforts based on what features our users are clamoring for right now trying to solve the immediate problem and then people get stuck with them and backwards compatibility means you can't fix these kinds of abstractions and so there are these half-baked solutions over and over again. So I, I just think this, I think, Lou, you're absolutely right. Like all the examples in here, like we see like AutoCAD, we see like Google something or other, Microsoft something or other. Like it's always these, this proprietary software. Yeah, one even in involves Twitter, right? That's not possible now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like these are the kinds of things where I really think and if, if we think that it's like academia not doing its thing, academia has supplied people with the means of, of knowing how to apply these things, I think, personally. They don't, haven't applied them themselves because it's industry that's building these tools for vernacular programmers, and industry has ignored academia. I just think this is a deeper problem here than just researchers not focusing on these things. Mm -hmm. It's even if they did, how do we get it into the hands of these vernacular programmers? 
So again, this isn't me like saying Mary Shaw's wrong, this paper's wrong. This is just saying I think it takes one step further down the line. Yeah, our interpretation of the audience as being academic people who are programming language designers is too narrow. We also need to include industry people who are programming language designers or programming tool designers for these vernacular programmers. That's the, that's the pro like I'm trying not to like, that's the, the thing that kept confusing me as I got to this point in the paper is the industry people don't believe these myths. They never have. They don't think that mathematical tractability is so important. They don't think that the software is the code. They don't think that uh, that software professional developers outnumber vernacular because they're the ones building all the software for all these people and they know how much is out there. So that's what's so confusing is like it, it, it's targeted at the audience that isn't – that's what I'm confused about. I disagree in this one section where Shaw actually makes the split – in this section, that myth that the, the code is the software, I think that does apply to industry people making vernacular programming tools because, th and it's, they may like fall ass backwards into it, but the, th the, the ill that they bring upon the world is that they see their product as the whole universe and they build a tool, like Lou was saying, that is proprietary and is closed. And that way of looking at the world is like the richest large version of richest largest version of of this idea that the code is the software that it's like this thing is the only thing that we need to think about it's the be all end all it is the complete picture and you ought not to look outside that and and look at you know the databases and the runtime environment and the other tools and the git and the different kinds of activities separate from creating these very bespoke purpose specific tools in whatever proprietary thing you're using or the creation of those environments themselves. There's like a myopia here. And I think that that totally plays in this, in this, the code is the software framing. I see what you're saying, Jimmy. I really do. However, I think the main message that Shaw is trying to get across is that these vernacular programming tools are worthy of more attention and care and a bit of love. And so I think that message is useful, whether it's received by like the academics or the industry folks. It's basically saying, look, these tools are like serious programming tools. They're not just little drawing tools or they're not just little spreadsheet tools. There's this like comparison it, that shows us, look how different these things look. And she's drawing a line between them and saying, we need to treat both of them with a lot of scrutiny and a, and a lot of effort and care. So maybe there's someone in the industry who's, who's reading Shaw's paper and got this far and, and that landed home. But I think it's a bit uh, harsh to say that, you know, Mary, Mary Shaw should be reaching those industry people instead of the academic people. I think... Ivan, you were saying earlier about how she knows her audience. Like, this is targeted at a very specific group of people working in programming. I think it would be slightly unfair to say, well, she's not targeting this other audience. You know, she maybe she will next year, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, I hope there's like a Mary Shaw equivalent in industry trying to drive th those messages home in another way. I, you know, like, it's like if she brought an apple then I wouldn't complain that it's 
not a banana. You know who the Mary Shaw is that's trying to reach industry? It's us, baby. We're the, oh, we're no. the ones. We're oh. the ones who are bringing this message to the masses. No wonder it's not going well. <laughs> so the next section. I, I want to comment on this photo. Oh, it's yes, me too. Yeah. Because I, I didn't understand this photo when I first read it until a recent episode of a D&D podcast where why this photo would be included was explained. Uh, so this was a Pathfinder uh, Glass Cannon podcast. They talked about this, not this photo, but it happens to help me understand it. So, uh, Ivan, do you know why this photo of a unicorn, it's the maiden and the unicorn, a unicorn resting its head on this young woman. Uh, do you know why this is included here? No, Jimmy, I don't. I also don't. Apparently, it was believed that if you want to catch a unicorn, there was a ritual you can perform. You place a virgin out in a field and let them sit there quietly no. for a long period of time, and then a unicorn would come and rest their head. <gasps> So this is purity myths. Yeah. So this is a myth around the purity that would bring this unicorn. That's what this picture is illustrating here, is this myth. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, that's, I had no idea. That's, um, that's a very art history-ass direction <laughs> for our show to go. <laughs> Um, I just, I, but that's why this picture was included, yeah. and that's why this painting was made. That's what it's illustrating: is this myth of how how you can find a unicorn, you know, a very strange medieval myth. So we have uh, the the first image in the paper is Apollo killing the python. I think that's self explanatory. It's like these myths. Let's kill these myths, right? Mythical creatures, right? Giant python. The second picture is Pandora opening the vessel and letting out all the you know the evils. That's the myth of the professional programmer, which makes perfect sense because programmers release evils into the world, like you know, following in the great tradition of Mark Andreessen. The third image is Vulcan forging the thunderbolts of Jupiter, and uh, that's accompanying the code is the software myth, which makes sense because, you know, software development ecosystem, these tools, these uh, things that we have to forge, that we release upon the world like thunderbolts. The programming language purity myths, the maiden and the unicorn. I think I want to be the unicorn this time. That's how I'm going to be. Uh, Jimmy, you can be the maid. I want to be the virgin. <laughs> oh, you want to be the virgin, Lou? Okay, I was going to say Jimmy should be the virgin, and Lou, you can be uh, the, the the bubbling brook in the background. You can be the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'll be that, please. Yeah, bubble, bubble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jimmy's at a horse show, so... I think I preferred it when I didn't know the reason behind this. Yeah, the the abstract interpretation is, um, is more my jam, knowing that there's like, a, oh, if I had actually gone and taken art history and listened to Dungeons & Dragons, historical podcasts yeah i mean you can see the kind of the the maiden is painted in a way that you would paint mary right there is not there isn't the blue that you would expect from like mary but it's very symbolic hmm. of, of mary mm -hmm. here right so the programming language purity myths i've highlighted the entire first paragraph i'm gonna read it because i love this beautiful <laughs> mainstream traditional programming language research focuses on purity 
symbolic notations with precise specifications and well-defined semantics that support provably correct solutions to well-specified problems. This has given rise to a pair of related myths that mathematical tractability of programming languages and the correctness of software are essential. And these two myths invoke a third supporting myth that specifications can and should be precise, complete, preferably formal, and available at the beginning of the programming effort. Yeah, I hate these. I hate these so much. It's all bad. This is like 100% my jam that I cover myself with and let the bugs of righteousness bite me. This is awful. Mathematical tractability, go away. Correctness, go away. Specifications, hate them. Don't want them. Next section, I guess. <laughs> I, I, okay, I I want to point out a tension here. This is not me disagreeing at all, but I do want to point out a tension here between this myth and the last one, mm. which was we talked about how vernacular programmers need things like precise syntax and abstraction and etc. Et and all of these things that that were pointed out. So precise syntax, abstractions, encapsulation, scope, and clear denotations. These are all mathematical tractable things. And so I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, I, I think the specification one is just kind of obvious. Like, I don't, I, I don't think anyone outside of academia, at least, really believes in specifications. At least not, like, upfront specifications created separately from the act of programming. Yeah, yeah. People might think we need to be a little bit more, you know, a little less loosey-goosey. But no one's like, hey, we should formally specify every single program we write um, in industry. Yeah. But I think that there's this like this mathematical tractability. I think we have to walk this very fine line. It's very easy to say math equals, you know, esoteric or, you know, catamorphisms or, you know, category theory. But even like having well precise syntax and understanding all of those properties, this is mathematical tractability. And it's the things that make us be able to deliver software that gives us the kind of, I think Mary Shaw calls it fitness for a purpose, right? Rather than correctness. Mm -hmm. Like that's what lets us do this is the mathematical tractability. We have to have some of this. And so I'm just curious to see how do we see this line between mathematical tractability and like we have to have some of it. I, I who has to have that um, though? Who, like whose who's problem is that, right? Like is the problem of mathematical tractability the problem of the programming language researcher or is it the problem of the programmer? And I think the objection that I have and that maybe Shaw has is that a lot of programming language developers love these mathematically, you know, the soundness and provability kind of capabilities and try to offer them in the work that they make in the programming languages that they design and their theorem provers and all that sort of thing and say, oh, the problem with C++ is that it has undefined behavior and therefore we need to be more rigorous in defining C++ or level up the ability to make formal claims about the C++ systems that we build, right? That we need that kind of like cock level soundness and, and certainty in our code. And I think that that's the, the part that I object to. I'm all for, let's have these, you know, formal properties. Let's do this reasoning. Let's, you know, have this elegance, but like keep it 
over there. Like, go do it in your ivory tower. Don't make me have to write software with that that stuff. I want to be over here with, like, drag-and-dropping, like, graphical GUI widgets and, and having them snap together satisfyingly because you did all the soundness stuff needed to make that snapping work so that it does what I want it to do. But I don't want to have to, like, prove to my programming environment that I'm doing exactly what I mean to be doing. Andrew. <gasps> Okay, can I can I can I <laughs> yes, say Yes, please, sorry. Yes, um, please. Yes. One of the most frequently said comments about some of the things that I make is people say is this Turing complete or like I'm not sure if this is Turing complete or it appears to be Turing complete and and it is like what appears in my YouTube comments on Twitter on Mastodon and more recently, it has been uh, part of the feedback I got when I submitted uh, to Splash, the person who reviewed it. And actually, the feedback was extremely useful. But one of the points of feedback was, this appears to be true and complete, but I'm not entirely sure. Which is why in the actual presentation itself, I put a little jokey section where I just proved that it was true and complete and then carried on without saying anything about it. Because I always feel like it's really not the point. The point is Shaw's thing. Like, is it, is it, it, what does she say? Does it have the fitness required? Yeah, is it fit for purpose? Yeah. So the main thing for me is, is it fit for purpose? And I've come up with this new concept where instead of looking at Turing completeness, which I don't find very useful, I ask, can I do the things in it that I want to do? And I have a new name for it called Luring Completeness. Lu, 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 do you get it? It's like Lu, but it's like, and the thing is, it's a really hard thing to measure and to prove, and it changes, and it's fuzzy, and you know, maybe luring completeness isn't what's important to you. Maybe Jimmy Ring completeness is what's important to you, or maybe it's our vernacular programmer ring completeness is important to you. But I think that's a far more useful thing to focus on. The thing is, Turing completeness is easy to hit, but there's something appealing about it. You know, it's this myth that it's really important. And it's this myth that we need to check this box. But like it's the Turing, what's it called? The Turing tarpet that you can get stuck on focusing on it. It doesn't matter. That's just one very small extreme example. I wonder about are these other examples of mathematical tractability, are they useful or are they just as pointless as Turing completeness? I do want to just highlight something, though, that you, you Lou, said in your Q&A, mm -hmm. asked by some anonymous person in the audience. <laughs> uh, was it Ivan? <laughs> yes, 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 it was Ivan. Uh, Ivan asked, and I really found this interesting, Ivan said, you know, something to the effect of, did you, when you're exploring these features in, in CellPond, is it really, is it the user interface that's giving you all these ideas of what you can do, or is it the VM? Mm -hmm. And there, it was definitely a leading question where Ivan assumed the answer was going to be the user interface. And, and you answered, no, it was the VM. The VM is, was more capable than that user interface. Mm -hmm. And I guess, in my mind, I see this as, kind of that, that two sides, right? You've built this tool that's very interesting for vernacular programmers in, in my mind, right? But also like it was the VM, this like mathematically tractable side of it that 
produced all of these ideas. I'm curious how you see that tension because the stuff you're working on is mathematically tractable and sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're getting all of these ideas. I, I don't know. I, I, I This is a tension that I'm just curious how we resolve. Yeah. Basically, this relates to this specification section as well. It might surprise you to hear that I actually think this general concept of specification is really important because it's really about design. So Shaw says that there's this myth that specifications can and should be precise, complete, formal. And I agree with her on that. I think that they don't need to be like that. But I would say that it is important in programming to have something planned and designed ahead of time. That's specification, I'm going to call it a specification, might be written down or it might be in someone's head, but there is a specification that you're working to. And in another Q&A, I did say, I mentioned the cell pond spec, the specification, and I mentioned how I actually deviated from it for performance reasons. So yeah, you're right. So I'm working from this VM, I'm working from this specification, but this specification is not built and designed to meet mathematical tractability. It is built and designed to meet something very fuzzy, which is luring completeness. (laughs) And I think that's the main (laughs) difference here. Like, there is only one person that could answer, is this luring completeness or not? (laughs) And it's me. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Just because something is fuzzy and hard to measure doesn't mean it can't be designed towards. And I think that's what a lot of people who work in academia and tech academia, who probably enjoy being able to prove things to other people. Some things are really hard to prove, but it doesn't mean they're not worth working towards. I come from the world of teaching where I have really mixed feelings towards assessment. We put kids through so many tests that are pointless and don't help them. But then we also do lots of really helpful assessment, like in the moment, just having a conversation with a child, checking their understanding, allowing them to give feedback to you. That's a really fuzzy question. And it goes really wrong when governments and departments for education... <laughs> I've got some, I've got some, some uh, deep-rooted feelings here. Anyway. <laughs> some institutional <laughs> trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the new Future of Education podcast. Yeah, art, <laughs> history, and our education. No, but it goes really wrong when they try to turn these fuzzy concepts into mathematically tractable, measurable statistics. And, and I, th- I see this disconnect. We're trying to make programs, systems for the real fuzzy world. Mathematical tractability doesn't help with the real fuzzy world. Maybe it helps with some stepping stone along the way, but the end goal, the target, is something fuzzy. And I think that's, that's what this VM was designed for. This rhymes very nicely with our episode about uh, legalism when we looked at Lawrence Divers, the rules yeah. of code. Is that what it was called? Whatever one that was. The Yeah, the interpreting the rules of code, uh, interpreting the rule of code, parentheses on the S. There's something later on in this paper that made me think of that too, which is where Shaw mentions about health systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe we'll get to that later. Maybe. <laughs> 
<laughs> if there's time. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I would say we're like uh, we're like halfway through. <laughs> oh, we're fine. We're fine. Oh, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. We're more than halfway through the myths, though. I know we're probably gonna skip the last myth. Yeah, we uh, are. Yeah. Yeah. AI. No, you're not mm. saying it. I'm cutting that out. That's fine. You can cut it out all you want. I'll just keep scattering it throughout. Make your editing job harder. That's fine. AI. I've done worse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, so there's, uh, there's, there's a passage in here that I actually want to call out as like this is the one part of the paper where I have a bone to pick (gasps) with Mary Shaw. Can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah, you can guess. It's on page seventeen. Uh, yeah. It is the like third paragraph that's on the page. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I also have, this is triple question mark uh, territory for me and three colors of highlighting. Yeah, this is nasty. So let's, I'll build up to it because I guess we're going to rip this one up. Um, so it's under a section titled The Myth of Mathematical Tractability Favors Mathematical Elegance Over Expressiveness or Domain-Specific Power. And she begins the section... Traditional programming language research emphasizes generality, soundness, completeness, richness, abstraction mechanisms, elegance, and so on. Love this. The researchers have deep expertise in different programming models, procedural, functional, logic, data flow, object-oriented, and the formalisms that support reasoning about the programs. They design languages intended for use by professional software developers who are adept at generalization, modeling, abstraction, and symbolic reasoning. Using these languages requires programming expertise and, in many cases, mathematical sophistication and maturity. Love all this. No notes, no problems so far. All good. Double thumbs up. Agree on all points. Love that there's like four lists in this one paragraph. Super good. Very good. And she continues. But how widespread is that mathematical proficiency? According to the Stack Overflow 2020 Survey of Professional Programmers referenced Stack Overflow 2020. Only three quarters have earned a college degree, and fewer than two-thirds of those received an undergraduate degree in computer science or mathematics. So fewer than half have college education that would suggest any proficiency in formal systems, even assuming that proficiency persists into their careers and is at a high enough level to handle type theory and category theory. Even more concerning, over 15% of the professional developers didn't think that college education is even needed to be a developer. In other words, there's significant dissonance between the level of formal proficiency expected by programming language researchers and that attained by developers. Holy f***. I cannot get mad enough at this paragraph. It conflates so many nasty things that are awful, that I hate. I don't know if she's trying to make a point here that I missed and took the wrong point away from it. But what I think she's trying to say is that it's, and I'll, you know what, I'll put some weasel words in there to even help her case. It's very likely that if you are going to use the sorts of mathematical, tractable, fancy features in advanced programming tools for professional software developers like type systems and category theory that it's important that you have a background in formal mathematics and you attain that background through formal education i think that's her point i think that point sucks i think that point is awful i think that point is 
just I have the same gut reaction here. I think I figured out an interpretation that saves this section for me because I tried to. <laughs> and and here's 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 the interpretation that makes it not as bad, right? Let's start with the assumption here that programming language researchers assume everyone using their programming languages have very sophisticated mathematical background. Which is already objectionable, but sure, I'll grant you that. Yeah, but let's say all of these researchers really think everyone has this complicated mathematical background, and now Mary Shaw is looking for evidence that suggests that is the case. And the best evidence we can get is formal education. Is that the only way you can get uh, the necessary background? No. But how do we measure it otherwise? Okay, look at these surveys. It looks like people, even the people who are formally educated, probably don't have the sophistication expected. That's like the the weaseliest way I can interpret this section. But yeah, there's I I'll, I'll get rid of the weasel things and just say there's so many conflations here of like that a formal education is the only way to obtain this that you need that sort of formal background in order to use things like type theory and category theory like that researchers expect this I it just this section just confused me and it felt unnecessary for the argument as well. Like, I just don't see how it undergirds anything here. And I admit that this is just a bias because I have no formal education. I do appreciate the different reasons the two of you get annoyed. Ivan is just objecting to, like, you know, I guess this elitist idea that's slipping in here. And Jimmy is just annoyed because the argument doesn't need it. <laughs> you know, yeah, that. So wait. <laughs> among other things. I agree with that framing of Jimmy's <laughs> objection. I disagree with that framing of my objection. My objection, here's a sentence. Here's a sentence that a human being wrote. All right. Here's a half of a sentence. Okay. Even assuming this proficiency persists into their careers and is at a high enough level to handle type theory and category theory, suggests a world in which people go to college or university and they study whatever they study and that is like inflating their balloon of knowledge and then when they leave that that you know realm of study and enter the world that that balloon gradually deflates throughout the course of their career as whatever knowledge that they picked up you know is lost to the to the falling sands of of memory time and that that's it, that that's the whole model for how it works to learn something like the mathematics that you'd need in order to be able to work with type theory and category theory. Like, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that hurts. Mm-hmm. Like, that's awful. That, that, that's not a, a straw person argument. <laughs> that is not a, what's the gender neutral of straw woman? Oh, you know, I, uh, I'm going to have a niece slash nephew in-law soon, right? Oh, whoa, yeah. So so I, I looked up what the gender neutral term for, like, uncle and auntie. Uh-huh. And they're just, they're just so bad. What are they? I don't want to be a pibbling. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I was, that's what I was going to, that's what I was going to mention. Pibbling. Pibbling? Pibbling? Pibbling. Parent sibling. Oh, I like that so much. <laughs> But you know what, like, the gender-neutral term for nephew and niece is nibbling. 
I like that too. That's great. Doesn't sound, no, it sounds like a disease, you know, we've got the piblings. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I think it's actually straw-ribbling. Stribbling? Just change it to scarecrow. I think just, <laughs> just for the clarification of doubt. A scarecrow is a straw person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just for any listeners at home, I am non-binary. That's why I'm joking about it. Yeah. All right. That's that's the context <laughs> needed. Carry on. I'm I'm binary, but I'm also joking about it. That well, because you know we're good friends. You know, <laughs> that's how it works. That's how it works. You learned it here. Uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> oh, can I put in a? Can I say something that would be like a that would literally boost the demographic of your audience? Please. Okay. I'm just gonna say this phrase. And then some people will get this joke. A very small number. Okay? Heat from fire, fire from heat. That's it. Thank you, Lou. I appreciate that. Yeah, like this this, this balloon of knowledge idea just hurts so much because it ignores all of the learning that you can do outside of a formal institution, which feels like something that Mary should be cognizant of and arguing for, given all the other stuff going on in this paper, baffles me that suddenly we get into this sort of, you know, academic supremacy <laughs> mindset. It implies that going through formal education is actually a way of accreting knowledge, not just accreting like a credential, um, which I think for most people it is. Ah, uh, come on. Even I, like formal education is a way of accruing knowledge. There's no question. Is it the only way? No. Is it knowledge that you'd accrete better and faster than alternative ways that you could accrete knowledge outside of a formal institution i i don't i don't agree i i think i think it's one person relative there are people who it really formal education really jives with them sure and that is something they really enjoy and that's the way they learn right yeah and then two there's kinds of things that are not propositional knowledge but like tacit knowledge that you gain in academia that are hard to gain elsewhere certain forms of writing, certain forms of review, like certain practices around proofs or whatever, right? Like I think that there's, I, I, even though I am, I have none, <laughs> I don't think we should completely diss on the formal education. All right, well, I'll save dissing on formal education for the next time that perennial theme comes up. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, got to yeah. keep powder dry. I think it's one of many ways. And here it's listed out as like the only way. But in my head canon, this this clumsy paragraph isn't there, so I don't think we need to worry about it. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I expect uh, every every paper we do from now on, we're gonna get the the Lou cut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in my head canon, this isn't there, uh -huh. right. and neither yeah. is. I mean, in your head canon, the last myth isn't there either, right? So right, yeah. So what you're saying is, we don't need that for luring completeness. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, do I want it? Yes or no? No, I don't want that paragraph. It's clumsy. It's not alluring, so it does not <laughs> does not make it into the alluring completeness. Absolutely uh, not. Yes, uh, there's another. Um, there's a little example on this page about um, somebody asking in a GitHub request the I think maybe one of the authors of F Sharp or one of the people one of the maintainers to add a feature, and their reply, which I loved, is. 
adding type-level programming of any kind can lead to communities where the most empowered programmers are those with deep expertise in certain kinds of highly abstract mathematics, e.g. category theory. Programmers uninterested in this kind of thing are disempowered. I don't want F-sharp to be the kind of language where the most empowered person in the Discord chat is the category theorist. That resonates with me because I have had people argue against visual programming for the same reason, saying, like, I don't want to have to have artistic skill to be a capable programmer. And so by creating a system where you require, like, artistic ability in order to do the programming work, it's it's going to be exclusionary towards that kind of person. Like, I've legitimately seen that opposition come up, and I love it, because it's like, you know, you are getting close to a deep realization. Thank you, a programmer, for raising that objection. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I love this thought, that it's like, yes, there's different ways that people can express themselves and have computers do something as a response to that. I think that's a lean into it kind of a thing, not a lean out of it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Which is my way of saying, type level, great, add it in, put all the types. Just I think, though, this is an innovation of TypeScript. TypeScript has type level systems. Like they, You can do a lot of very advanced type systems work in TypeScript, and yet what we don't see is that category theorist being the one empowered. We see a lot of users being empowered. So I think this was actually like a user interface issue and an education issue and a framing issue yeah. rather than like a, a, a you know, just the fact of type level programming. Yeah. And so like that to me is what TypeScript really like overcame, which I think is fascinating. So I'm hoping that visual programming will also let me, who has no artistic ability, be, you just got to overcome that. Right. Let let me do something cool, even though my art is awful. That that would be very interesting to me. Where it's like, oh yeah, there's a, a hierarchy of people who are able to make good use of visual programming, like true visual programming. I'm not talking Scratch, Max MSP stuff. I mean, like the one where you're doing drawing as the programming activity, where there's like, you know, some people with basic like stick figure level art skill are able to do some work, but then as you have more and more artistic proficiency, there's like a kind of expression that you can make that is like meaningful to the computer that people without artistic capability are unable to express to the computer. That's the like, that's wild. I love that thought. So this goes on to like DSLs here <laughs> after we, uh, after we diss on people without formal education, uh, we uh, diss on programs that uh, are not domain specific. Uh. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I don't know where this, like this section, I agree with the thrust of this section, but I was confused on the setup of it. Yeah. Well, like DSLs are often ad hoc. And so they lack a sort of formal rigor that maybe some other programming systems have. But DSLs are, are wonderfully useful for obvious reasons, especially if you're a vernacular programmer. I think there's just an appeal here to say, hey, can we get, I don't know what the appeal here is. Actually, you know what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cause it, it, it's this, like, this is where I don't, like, the tension is is here because, like, what what this, what this section is saying is, like, mathematical tractability bad, right, to oversimplify, but 
DSLs have not been giving the loving care and attention that is regularly lavished on general purpose languages. What is that loving care and attention? It's mathematical tractability. Yeah. That's, that's I'm just so confused. What's like we we talked about the the problem is mathematical tractability. That's all these language designers care about. That's the time and attention and care they're putting into their languages. And we don't do that for DSLs. But how, what tools is the researcher supposed to use other than these tools they've been using for general purpose programs, which is their math? Maybe there's a, we need to cut mathematical tractability in half. Like maybe we've like glommed too much onto that term that there's like, like you said, hey, in the previous section, talking about, uh, you know, the design of denotations and abstractions and all that kind of stuff, that's the mathematical tractability. Maybe that's the mistake we're making, is that Shaw does not consider that stuff to be the mathematical tractability part. Because, like, here's a quote, right? The sheer volume of software development based on notations and tools other than traditional general-purpose programming languages cries out for care and attention. So DSLs are crying out for care and attention. The myth of mathematical tractability distracts programming language designers, those, you know, ivory tower experts, from opportunities to trade generality for power in a language while maintaining the formal rigor now largely reserved for general-purpose languages. So... That myth of mathematical tractability is about like, hey, we only want to apply our effort to domains where we can like write formal proofs about what this software is doing. So any efforts that we make, like, you know, coming up with better notations or coming up with a like an elegant way to have concurrency at the programming language level rather than you know, as some weird ad hoc layered on top, you know, collection of nonsense. Like any, any nice properties that we might want to imbue a language with should not be reserved for the languages in which, in, in which we can make like strong formal statements, strong mathematical statements. We should also be doing that work in these ad hoc DSLs where we can't make these big formal statements. They deserve just as much power and expressivity as the general purpose formal languages. I'm I'm confused. I think what you just said at the va- that last sentence made me even more confused. Awesome. <laughs> but I'm going to ignore that one for a second. How are mathematical tractability and formal rigor different? Because Shaw says here that we need to trade the generality for power in a language while maintaining the formal rigor now largely reserved for general purpose languages. So the way I take the statement is stop focusing on general purposeness. That's what the generality for power in a language, right? Don't have, make it generally applicable to everything. Focus on a domain, but imbue it with formal rigor, aka mathematical tractability. I, I don't see how formal rigor is not mathematical tractability. I think those terms seem a bit vague to me. And, and this is what I found reading through it was, wait, what bits are good and we should do and what bits are not good? And I know what I think. Like I could, I could say, like from my own opinion, that mathematical tractability can be a blocker. It can make you too focused on like the internal workings or implementation of a system instead of the actual like human fuzzy facing design. And I think I want to keep taking it back to this concept of system versus a program because you can prove that mathematical tractability of a program, but it 
it might be that you can't actually prove certain things about a system. And, and it's not like, should we do more mathematical tractability proofing or whatever? It might be actually the thing we're trying to make, which is a system, not a program. We can't even do it, even if we wanted. However, I would say that I think it is a bit confused um, or at least I got confused when I was reading it. Like maybe that's a, then maybe that's a me problem. I don't know. But like there's this one paragraph in particular, which I highlighted in red because I don't like it. Where, <laughs> where sh- I, you know, with respect, Shaw states, and, and I've, I've been reading this and I'm struggling to find a point to start reading a quote because it's like a lot of, you know, referring to previous things. yes yeah yeah as we as we have stated um but it's on page 20 and basically she says proponents of the former referring to uh i believe like mathematically tractable programs general purpose programs for example value minimality of the language base (laughs) for its mathematical properties while proponents of the latter referring to systems for vernacular programmers where you're not caring so much about the mathematical tractability of something will, for example, value richness of the constructs available as part of the language. Okay, so I have a huge disagreement there because Shaw is stating that domain-specific languages are away or tend away from minimalism and they they're better if they're more complicated and more rich and they provide like a bigger breadth of options. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't really see a supporting statement here behind that. I think sometimes the best domain specific tool is just the thing that does that one thing that someone wants to do. Like that's the whole point of being domain specific. It's honing in on less. So I feel tangled up with some of these points. I don't fully understand, but I think that like the core message of mathematical tractability is less relevant to fuzzy real world systems. That I agree with. And I think that's in my head canon. That's what I'm taking out. I think all of this could be cleared up and I understand why it's not there. All of this could be cleared up if we could just point at some of the people who are believing the myths, <laughs> right? Like I, I know that why it's not, mm-hmm. yeah. but I'm just, I, I continue to be confused on who it is that's believing the myths. And I would love somebody who just like accepts these, right? Like if we can find somebody who'd like, mm. just like, will say, you know, a, a well-known researcher who'd be like, these aren't myths. These are facts. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that exists. If we, and we could just point at them and say, that's the kind of person I'm thinking of then I, I think this would all be clear because like when I read that section about minimality and language base and its mathematical properties versus richness of the constructs, richness of the constructs available as part of the language, I think Ruby, right? Ruby is a language that's all about the richness of the constructs. It is not a minimal language in any way, shape, or form. It is about piling in a lot of stuff, right? And that stuff is useful. It's good. It's lets you express things in lots of different ways. And then, you know, a minimal mathematical base, I maybe think of, you know, a Haskell, but minimal kind of hard, but like the core of Haskell, right? Like the core of Haskell or maybe like the core of some scheme, right? Like I, I, these are the kinds of things that I think of as, as having this minimal base for its mathematical properties, 
but then who are we talking about? Because those are both language designers valuing different things. Like I, I, I just I, I wish we could just point to somebody because there's so much in here that I feel is right. Yeah. So much in here that I think is like the point of this paper. I do think we are overly obsessed with mathematics. I do think we don't pay attention to the vernacular programmer enough. We focus on mathematics to our peril where we stop actually solving real issues that people are having, right? Like that core of the myth is so true. There's a reason we don't cover a lot of, we can't, I can't just open up any computer science journal and pick an article out of there and we do it on the podcast. Yeah. Or we'd be talking about catamorphisms of abstract data types, right? <laughs> uh -huh, it, it would be really hard, although there is a paper on catamorphisms so that we totally could do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As an abstract art piece, I'm 100% there. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, Functional Programming with Bananas, Lenses, Envelopes, and Barbed Wire. Ooh, See? that sounds like Scala. Uh, I, I knew I could at least get you with... This is uh, Eric Meyer is the first author listed here. And that goes through recursion schemes, which catamorphism is. Uh, yeah, right. Yes, uh, yes. So, yeah, yeah. Anyways, but there's so many things that are just overly mathematicized that it becomes very hard for not just vernacular programmers to be involved, but industry programmers to be involved. And I think that that's a real valid critique. It's just when we get into the weeds here, I know that there's a way, there's an interpretive lens to make sense of all of the things that are being said here. And if I try to take the right lens, I end up agreeing with them. But then I start questioning again as if we've switched frames mm -hmm. and, and taking different lenses here. And I think that's the problem with the, the volume of this paper. It's so large and has so many different approaches that you get confused between which approach is being taken at a given moment. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a solvable problem. We could literally speak to Mary Shaw and ask her to name and shame, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Richard D. James did it in the Incommensurability album. That was like, th that was good. It was like Bra Braca and Cook versus whoever the Lisper person won. Richard D. James? Yeah, Aphex Twin. Yeah. <laughs> like, are you trying to, you're trying to get, <laughs> okay, you're trying to confuse them with somebody else. I didn't know that that was a person in Aphex Twin. <laughs> Yeah, no, Peter Peter Gabriel and Richard D. James, great computer science uh, recording artists. Who also was the shepherd on in this writing. That's what listed as the shepherd of this. Of this of this Shaw paper? What? Yeah, yeah, it's the very top. Uh, yes, yes, right. You're talking about um, Peter Gabriel. Aha, <clears throat> uh, uh -huh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I think we should wrap up this this section here, even though there's a lot more about correctness and specification. I'm not sure that unless you really have some thrust that we can go to and not get lost in the weeds here. This is a long <laughs> section. All right. Can I, 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 I said my piece about specification. That's gone. But correctness. Yeah. This is a hundred percent robust first computing. And Dave Ackley is listening to this right now and saying, no, it's not. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. But this section is talking about correctness and kind of an overemphasis and overfocus on correctness. And correctness can mean multiple things. It can mean like correctness of a specification, completeness of a specification, but it can also be about needing computers to be correct. So, and there's a section um, called good enough is often good enough. And it sort of maps out different kinds of 
computer program. On one end of the scale, the two-dimensional scale, we have things like finding a restaurant, appointment scheduling. It doesn't matter so much if the computer get those, gets those things wrong, but obviously it matters a bit, but not as much as the other end, which is things like nuclear safety devices, self-driving cars, medical implants. And it's very important that those things are correct. And Shaw highlights the point, the good point, that not everything needs to be 100% correct. Things can be slightly wrong. They just need to be good enough. Because, you know, we're working in a, in, a, in a world where there is this element of fuzziness. You know, computers, like people, like any other part of this big system we're in, can be wrong. In robust first computing, there's also this concept that computers up until now have been focusing too hard on correctness and also efficiency. And that just doesn't reflect the fuzzy boundaries to our world. And yeah, I see that same point here, this incompatibility with completely 100% of the time a computer being right is not compatible with the rest of the world. But what I don't see here in this chapter is this concept of robustness, because maybe because it's a very sort of specialist or niche area. The thing is, I care less about whether a medical implant in me is correct or not. And that might sound weird, right? But imagine this, you have a medical implant inside you that's regulating your, your body in some way. I want to tell you that no computer is always correct. It's, it just, it's just not possible. No computer is always correct. They have bugs in them. They have other things that go wrong with them. Hardware failures, whatever. So let's just say that 99.9999% of the time it's correct. But what about that time it's wrong? And in robust first computing, the idea is that those times that you're wrong, you're not that wrong, right? For me, that's more important than maximizing correctness. For certain things where safety is involved or security is involved, I'd much rather something is mostly correct than correct as much as possible. So I think Shaw is right to pull out this issue of hyper-focus on correctness, but I'm not sure what the sort of solution is or the replacement. Do we just need to get better at it for some things or how do we get better at it for some things and how, how do we let go of these other things? There's a, um, an interesting contrast between that robust first worldview where the emphasis is on not minimizing the likelihood of error, but making error states survivable, mm -hmm. um, which kind of rhymes with uh, like um, Joe Armstrong, <clears throat> sorry, rhymes with Neil Armstrong's work on Erlang. And the view espoused by a lot of functional programmers where you want illegal states to be irrepresentable. You want to make sure that if the code compiles, then it's going to run perfectly. And that the latter view is sort of assuming that the environment in which the software is going to run is fully predictable and fully controllable. It's like, okay, if we know everything about the circumstances in which this program is going to be run, then we can make some hard guarantees about the way that the program's going to work at compile time. And they really lean into that in a way that I think is kind of cool. But the robust first says, well, we don't know what the runtime environment's going to be like. Somebody might come along and cut my CPU in half 
If my CPU were built to be a robust first computer, it would be able to survive being physically cut in half and just carry on perhaps a little bit more slowly or perhaps, you know, needing a little bit of time to recover, but it could, you know, carry on regardless. That's not going to be a, a, a catastrophic failure condition. Whereas if I took some Haskell program that's running on some chip and I cut the chip in half, I don't think anybody in Haskell land is worried about that happening the way that Dave is worried about that happening. So I think this like um, example of like the T2 tile, which you're referring to, which can, you know, literally be cut in half and carry on working is an extreme example. And it's quite a fun example. So I think it's often what people think of when they think of robust first computing, because it's like, you know, it's on Dave's YouTube channel and it looks very cool and impressive. But really, robust first computing is like a lot more boring than that. And, and I mean that like in a positive way, like, don't worry, it's more boring than that. So for me personally, my legal name is different with different places. So like my doctor is one thing, my hospital is the other thing. So things go really badly when my doctor requests that I have an appointment at the hospital or vice versa. So what happens is they're not used to people having two different names on two different systems, which, which I didn't want to happen. I tried to avoid it. But what happens often is that the computer crashes because they've said that, no, our type system is correct. It says that these two name values should be the same, right? Mm -hmm. And it was an oversight, right? They didn't think that people could have different names in these two different places. But the way they decided to deal with that was not robust first. They decided, we're going to crash out because then we'll find the bug quickly and maybe we'll fix it. Well, they haven't. The robust first thing to do would be to handle that and to say, like, how are we going to recover from this er error state that we're in? So I think there's a kind of like a straw person with the robust first stuff that people think it's just about making a really cool computer. And it is, you know, that's part of like getting people to discover it, just how local first is to other stuff. But anyway, mm -hmm. like, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just kind of a mentality and a measure of software. How robust first is your hospital booking form, right? Are you going to deal with these dodgy names? And this is like a very common thing where names that are not expected make programs crash. Sometimes I can't put my name in because it's two characters long. But anyway, I'm not saying that like, you know, everything needs to be robust, but it would be helpful to have it as one of these measures. When we talk about correctness, let's also talk about robustness because they're completely different things. And, and very compatible things too. Ha as somebody who has not read or watched any Ackley, so uh, I'll just say thank you, at least for kind of, you know, getting some context here. I think this is definitely something we should cover yeah. in the future, you know, probably, you know. Next weekend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though I'm getting the gist of it, probably the listener who's not familiar also might be a little lost on some of this because it's not something we've, you know, really explored here. I will say, just because I'm sure some people right now are screaming at the, the podcast, as you do, uh, that you got to remember when we're talking about correctness here we're talking about this myth of correctness this mythical version of correctness cuz if we talk about like maybe a more robust definition of correctness it would include all of the things that we're talking about with robust first software it would include like how do we how do we remain correct in these strange circumstances blah blah, blah. i know robust first clearly has some other stuff going on with it than just that but I'm sure there's somebody saying, you're just not understanding correctness criteria. You can define all of those things. We're talking about this 
the siren song of correctness, as Shaw puts it, that this idea that we can be absolutely correct and not have to think about the purposes. We just have to think about these mathematical properties, right? It's kind of a, a scarecrow version of correctness. Um. <laughs> <laughs> correctness as it manifests, as opposed to the ideals of correctness that we would like to yes. uphold via robustness and via, you know, whatever other things, mm -hmm. Erlang, yeah. what have you. So... We, we haven't rated this myth. <laughs> right. Well, we're not done okay, okay. this myth. Yeah, there's there's a list. There's a list. Oh, no. Are you going to read the list? I'm going to read the list. You're so good at it, so. Software correctness is intrinsically problematic because of many types of uncertainty. I love, I love this. I knew it was going to be this one. Yeah, <laughs> it's the big list. And it's also... It's the biggest one. It's the biggest list, but it's also the list that makes me happiest to think about. Um, because for every one of these, think about like what is the future of coding-esque outsider perversion of what we know of as programming when you refract it through this warpy lens. Even if individual modules can be formally verified, they execute in an unverified software environment. Even if the compiler and operating system were correct, it's not practical to verify the rest of the software stack, nor are the specifications of all the layers such that a given program's interaction with them can be formally verified. Simply identifying which versions of which software elements affect the behavior of a system can be challenging. Hence, the current interest in the software bill of materials. Which we could actually do an episode on that at some point, and the, and the software supply chain and that sort of thing. I think there's some super FOC relevance there. Understanding of software's requirements may co-evolve with software development, which precludes a firm, fixed specification. That's, you know... Waterfall is bad, right? <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, do the do the programming where you discover what it is that you're going to be building through building it, right? That's a that's a perennial theme in this paper, and I think we're all fond of that. Much software is now provided in the cloud. Current practice updates it continually and without notice. There's your local first thread. Software embedded in physical systems is subject to the uncertainties arising from the physical systems. Like your CPU could get cut in half. <laughs> yeah, that's like the flashy example, but I also love it because it's also a, a, a very common theme in science fiction, you know, that overlaps with programming and how we think about it. Solutions to societal problems are hard. These problems do not lend themselves to even forming consensus on the problem definitions, let alone definitions of success. They're called wicked problems. That one, right? Perennial theme of the show, the legalism rule of code episode, all about that. The whole idea that, you know, programmers keep trying to solve social problems with technical solutions. And finally, acquiring specifications has cost so it makes the most sense to get the specifications relevant to the task rather than trying to be complete. I love this list. I think this is a great list. It's full of provocative challenges to the worldview that you can like define, here's what the correct software will do, open, shut, easy, straightforward example that programmers can do on their own in advance of going and writing some, some code. Of course, Shaw then goes on to say, yeah, the thing we want is not 
a correctness specification. We just want some criteria for fitness for purpose, whether the software is good enough, and that depends on things like the consequences of something going wrong and the likelihood that a problem will be detected and corrected before anything goes seriously wrong. Closes the loop on all the stuff that we have said in this section so far. No notes. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Oh, are, are we going to blow right past the... Uh, we'll, we'll leave this as an exercise for the for the reader who wants to go and read this paper. There's actually a lot of good stuff in this paper, even though we're kind of ragging on it. There's a, an example of uh, Richard D. James tries to make this um, program for creating music uh, <laughs> called Synthwell. Uh, it's a program that generates uh, generative music, and uh, it's, a, it's a really nice example where um, uh, Richard splits themselves into two people and the two people have to collaborate on this problem. It's it's very nice. Yeah, I got very confused by that. You know, especially because who is that the the person in the previous example? The there was a stick figure? Frida? Yeah, Frida. Yeah, the real person. I was really looking forward to a uh, you know, Richard and Dick are both real people and it's the same person, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, this was very metaphorical this section. Well, you have to know that Richard P Gabriel there I said their <laughs> I said their stage name is uh, is actually a real person and a, I believe a friend of Mary Shaw and um, also wrote a, uh, some papers that we have previously covered on this show. So like this this the P stands for Peter Peter Gabriel is like a is like a hero of our of our program. Yeah. So so I knew that. However, I didn't know if like uh, you know it's like Jekyll and Hyde where Richard P. Gabriel transforms every night, you know, into, into Dick. But, um, no, it was an enjoyable section. Highly recommend. Yeah. Recommend reading the paper just for that section. Um, oh, I have so much green in this section. Uh, oh, and then we get to skip the following section cause it's the one about the fall of Icarus. Um, so we're gonna just ignore that. Um, We'll have no discussion of waxed wings on this program. And that brings us to the conclusion. Which is the best part of this paper. Yeah, the conclusion whips. Uh, honestly, like, when I, this was the thing where I got to the section and I, I started going back being like, wait, I must have, I'm, that's what that section was saying. I think this could have been at the beginning. Yes, should have been at the beginning. Yeah, we had a summary at the beginning and... I think had it been this summary, it might have helped every section along and, and it might have helped focus it. I think that, that this this paper could have used some editing, in, in my opinion, on uh, to focus in on some of these arg arguments and just make them a little sharper because there's so much packed in here, you get lost in the weeds. And I think that's kind of what we did. We got a little lost in the weeds. But this brings us back... No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ...to breaking down each of these myths and the way in which the myth distracts us. And I, I, I love this phrasing, that the myth distracts us from doing certain things. I will not try to read them because I know I will fail at reading them. But we get each of these myths in turn... And uh, the one that I particularly liked, though, is this, this idea of the professional programmer. Why was this professional programmer myth brought up? I will read this one, I guess. The myth distracts programming language designers from opportunities to improve software overall by bringing programming language design expertise to the notations and development processes that support the needs of vernacular programmers. I, I think that this 
professional programmer myth here. I will, once we, a little bit of spoilers, once we get to my list of myths, <laughs> I, I want to twist this one. But I think this is really important. I do think that we are not using the tools that we have as programming language designers, which I just count people in the future of coding community. Whether you're doing that or not, I bet you you are, in some small part, being a programming language designer. Or you're thinking about it. Right. Even I think even the APIs we build, the software we build, oftentimes we're building these kind of implicit languages in part of it. I think there are ways we can build that expertise and broaden it. I think that it is a very generally applicable tool that can be used whether that's in visual programming systems, whether that's in constraint systems, whether that's in whatever, right? Even more traditional systems. I think these are things that are just not more widely used. And I love this phrasing of the myth distracts us. I, I, I think this is a key that I wish the paper focused on in a little tighter fashion. Mm -hmm. There's a... Um a wonderful list. And I'm not going to read this whole list. I'm going to say we're all going to take turns reading bullets from this list. <laughs> oh, nice. Which is the the list of suggestions that Mary has for things that we could do when we uh, get away from these myths, when we divorce ourselves of these myths and see things as they truly are, say pragmos. And I'll, I'll, I'll read the first one. Uh, for example... We could support the background and mindset of our intended users, hide the complexity and higher mathematics, for example, with domain-specific abstractions. The advent of low-code environments suggests a niche in software development that presents an opportunity for providing better languages to a wide audience. Support exploratory programming that seeks understanding as well as programming to satisfy specifications. Bring the power of programming language design to scripting, markup, graphical, mashup, and other domain-specific languages and tools. Bow, 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 air horns. Woo, yes, this one. Very good. Okay, but what does, like, bring the power? It's kind of fun, but also, like, that's, that's, what does that mean? What does, what, why, what makes you go air horns? Expressive power. Like a, a lot of, you know, no code, low code tools are like extremely limited in what you can do with them. And general purpose programming languages are extremely unlimited. And I, I think that there is a beautiful fusion that you could have between those two things. I interpret this a little bit differently because they also say domain specific languages, which are not supposed to have the expressive power. Um, so I disagree with that framing. That's I know that that's probably like the the definition, but I think it's a bad definition. Okay, well I'll just say another interpretation because I also liked this. I think there's another way of interpreting it that I think is positive, which is that oftentimes these tools have these very ill-defined edges to them. Right. I, I think of a lot of these commercial tools where like, oh, well, you can do that, except for it's kind of hacky and kind of bad. And there's these like weird. Why does it work that way? Well, because we released seven different versions and we never kind of fixed the the crunchy edges of this. And so to me, the the power of programming language design is that we've figured out over a lot of years how to have a cohesive design. 
right? We learned from the mistake of JavaScript, how to do some scope and stuff like that. We learned from the mistake of Python, how to do packages. We've learned how to, from the mistake of Perl, how to not make every random paint splot a valid program, right? Like we've learned how to, how to fix some of these issues. And so I think that to me is like, a lot of these tools haven't learned these lessons and are continue to repeat these problems that past programming languages had at, because we haven't applied some of the latest research and ideas here. That's, that's what I, I took out of this. 100% completely agree. And just to sneak it in here, my definition of domain-specific language is basically like a language where the kind of expression that it encourages you to do matches the kind of domain problem that you're trying to solve and bonus where it has like a good ass standard library for the kind of thing you're doing so if i'm doing like computer graphics for a video game and i want to do some like generative graphics for the game i don't want to have to go write that in c or maybe lua i want like a domain specific language that's good for generative graphics within the you know polygon tool set or whatever it is that i'm using it doesn't have to be limited expressive power or limited capability it just has to be like no this is an environment that is like focused on a domain other than the creation of software that's my personal definition of domain specific language would elm meet your criteria yes not not in the ultimate way yes. that you want yes. but like elm would be a dome yes domain specific language in your thing because it's focused on web interactive apps. websites yes, yes exactly yes okay. elm is a domain specific language for making interactive web. even though elm is also a general purpose language yeah. in its general yeah. expressive capability yeah uh, like java is a domain specific language for creating massive employment <laughs> in it <laughs> so the next the next example is enrich type systems to elevate noisy or probabilistic data to first class status in the language and to capture provenance of data from different sources. Make provisions for contingent results that may change after the next time a machine learning model is retrained. Support contracts about behavior of data as part of the type system. We didn't get into that part of the paper, but there's a part where Shaw explores this, but I love all these ideas. I love this idea of like, enrich the nature of data that can be talked about in your type system. Like that, that probabilistic data in the type system, like I need that uh, for what I am working on right now at Ink and Switch. Like that would be very helpful to have is, you know, if TypeScript could let me talk a little more expressively about probabilistic data, that would be awesome. Yeah, provenance, I think, is one that I have yeah, really I, wanted. Yeah. I worked on a medical recommendation system where we did a bunch of rules engine stuff and made recommendations on prescription renewals or whatever. And one of the things we had to do in this kind of ad hoc manner is track provenance because we needed to know why did this recommendation happen? Mm -hmm. What rule made it so that we get this result and why didn't this one fire and et cetera. And that was one of the most complicated parts of the system and you could easily get it wrong. And having something that can track these things, not just for security things, but also for understanding my program and which systems talk to what. I think, fantastic. Love love that idea. Wicked. Uh, last one, Lou. I gave this one two ticks, actually. So this, this is a good one. Uh, Explore ways to determine how good, by whatever measure, software needs to be for a given application as well as how good a piece of software actually is, so that it's possible to evaluate good enough in context. And this good enough thing came from the uh, 
correctness section. It's saying, how correct does this particular piece of software need to be? Or like, how consistently correct does it need to be? I love this idea. I am at a loss for what, what this means. And that might be the best. I, to me, that actually <laughs> is like the best thought, right? Like, I love the idea of exploring different ways of determining how it's quote unquote good by whatever measure, right? I love that. Because I think this is something that we ignore. We tend to act as if we have a defined notion of good and everyone else agrees with our notion of good and that's what determines it and we never explore these sorts of things. So I, I maybe I quibble with uh, measure, but like it's by whatever measure. Uh, like it's not really about measuring and assigning a number, right? It's like by whatever means. Um, yeah. So I, I love this. Yeah. I have no idea how you go about this, but mm -hmm. I love it. I mean, I've definitely like been in design conversations or seen conversations or seen rationales out there where there's too much of an emphasis on trying to get that 100% solution. Oh my God, I'm not freaking referencing Jonathan Blow, am I? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never do that here. That's don't, forbidden. Don't. Not under my name. Not on my name. He's the, the witness is not going to be in the show notes this episode. I blocked him on Twitter, man. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, but th there's the... What am I saying? Sometimes you just need a 90% solution. Sometimes a slow program is better than no program. Sometimes a program that crashes if you do things to it the wrong way is fine. Sometimes a program where you have to run it a couple of times before it has its effect is fine. Sometimes a program that doesn't do the thing you need it to do in terms of like the effect it has on the world is okay if it does something else that is like valuable, like shows you, oh, this was not the right approach to solving the problem, right? Like the evaluation of the program can happen in so many different ways if you make it like context aware. And it's only when you try and divorce evaluation from context that things go wrong. See also previous discussion about assessment in education, which like, you know, government instituted, every child in the country gets a numerical score that determines their future. Like that is so divorced of context that it's awful. So I want to read this next, these next two sentences right after this list, because I think it kind of resolves the conflict that I was having with this mathematical tractability and I think it really just puts in a way that I, I think I just wholeheartedly agree with. I don't think I could quibble with this kind of conclusion here. This is like uh, Shaw's conclusion of what needs to be done now. Above all, the programming language research community should make these improvements in a way that exploits the power of the formalism while still supporting the background, mindset, and workflow of the intended beneficiaries of these improvements. Capabilities grounded in formal mathematics have great power, say mythos, but making them effective, say pragmos, requires packaging them and presenting them in a way that provide the power without the obligations for users to master the formalism. I think that's spot on. I think that is fantastic. I think this 
is the power of programming language. You take something that was a specific problem that someone had to understand all of the details of, and you solve it in this general way without them having to know all of this. Think memory management and garbage collection. This is something where there's so many complicated properties that have to hold for garbage collection to happen. You have to really think about all of these details. But as a programmer, you don't need to know all of those details. And even the things you might need to know, like, oh, I allocate and I'm allocating too much. And like the older, gen like some things you end up learning, it's still not all the details. You look at how the JVM does garbage collection and how it does thread safety and all of that. There's so much that goes into this. And I, I do think this is the power of a language-based solution in the broader sense of language-based, where this is the, the medium in which we write, rather than specific solutions to specific problems, trying to tackle this broad generality and paying attention to that audience and not making them learn all of those details. I love this. I think this was, this is the thrust of this article that I like am just a hundred percent behind. So maybe I am FOC pilled <laughs> despite all my quibbles. I agree. I think the thing I like about that statement and this conclusion is that it's clear that Shaw is trying to bring out the best of both kinds of programming world out there. I have a lot of respect for her trying to be a bridge between two things which sometimes seem quite separate, like in that section where vernacular programming and professional programming were compared. There's a lot of difference with strengths and weaknesses, and she makes the case for combining them together. There's another section of this conclusion that I really like. The programming language myths arise, I think, from a deep-rooted need for certainty. Indeed, it is possible to find certainty within a formal system. The world, however, is uncertain, messy, non-deterministic, robust first, ambiguous, human. It does not lend itself to the precision required for formal definitions. Non-binary. And that prevents the certainties within our formal systems from being translated with confidence to the world. We should certainly continue to aspire to precision and completeness, but we should also provide support for practical software that runs in a context of inherent uncertainty. And that is robustness. That's robustness. I think now is the time, unless Ivan has uh, something in this conclusion. No. All right. <laughs> no, nothing to add. Now is the time where we have to list our myths. Yeah, sure. Our replacement lists. I haven't thought of any myths. <laughs> well, yeah, you have 30 seconds. I'm only capable of speaking the truth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, then, then this is your... Let me tell you how to do this myth. Thing. I am only capable of speaking lies. <laughs> Oh. oh dear. Oh no. <laughs> you just have to like flip your myth, Ivan. You say, this is not true, and then speak the truth. You know what I mean? I'm very bad at doing that. <laughs> I only understand things correctly, and, and uh, yes. Anyways, maybe, maybe after the two of you do yours, I'll have thought of something. Okay. Here's my first myth. Okay. Long papers are good. <laughs> <laughs> I may have written this immediately after 
reading this paper like three times. So there may be some emotions caught up and tangled up there. But, and I say this directed to the Ink and Switch employee on the Zoom call. (laughs) (laughs) Called out. Long papers are fine. But I think we've, in this specific paper, I think we would have all appreciated, yeah, like a bit of editing. It sounds so anal to say, right? You know, like, I really love this paper, but I I love it so much that I want those key points to shine even more, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think some of these things could have been appendices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, did you say appendices? Appendices. Appendices. But isn't pembus, isn't that the, like, the gender-neutral... Pembus? Was that what it was? Uh, Wait. Yes. Pibbling. Pibbling. There was pibbling, but wasn't there no. pembus? Wasn't Wait, pembus mum? mumps? Like no, not mumps. Listen, uh, you can cut that, cut that part out. No. But long papers are not, not good. Not always good. Myth number two, making a programming language is something only an elite few can do. I like that myth. I think making programming languages is something that, for some reason, is seen to be this insanely difficult thing. I would say that it is difficult, but it's only as difficult as most other programming tasks. Completely agree. I don't know if it's the Dragon Book or something. It's got this weird status. And myth number three, uh, the tech world isn't completely morally bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow uh, that was a, that came out of left field there uh, uh-huh. getting them all in on the first episode lou this is great it just needs repeating you know yeah needs repeating uh moving on yeah yep i'm sure that won't be a perennial theme <laughs> uh, yeah I, I think that would we need to find some good good uh stuff on that for sure yeah i don't know of any good papers on the moral bankruptcy but oh don't worry we'll we'll get there when we get to my myths <laughs> oh boy you have myths now i have myths now <laughs> and, and those were your three right you had three myths yeah i had three myths okay okay i have i have one myth mm-hmm. which is vernacular programmers and professional programmers are significantly different from each other that's my myth hmm okay hmm you think they have more in common than what keeps them apart recast this whole paper and just talk about both mm-hmm. professional and vernacular programmers and the needs that we all have mm-hmm. collectively, all kinds of programmers, it works just as well. I think that this division between professional and vernacular programmers needing different things is what has made this problem where vernacular programmers are given all these proprietary things and they don't have the general power and etc but it's also made the problem where professional programmers get like ultra nerdy tools or not well designed and not paying attention to the graphical design the visual design of things like i think all of these this division is to me a myth i don't think that we're actually that different and i think that Focusing on the needs of one versus the other is causing some of this problem. Myth busted. I like that. I've actually just added that to my list too. So <laughs> I can't 
deal with his list. <laughs> Ivan's list is just four items. <laughs> it is. Well, it is. <laughs> Wait, what? It's lose three and my one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that your full list, Jimmy? You have one more, don't you? No, no, it's just one. <laughs> that was it? Uh-huh. Okay, well, mine... Yeah, my, th- th- these are going to sound familiar. My first one... Oh, my God. I think Lou said this. My first one is that papers are good. Papers are good. <laughs> papers are good, <laughs> right? That's kind of what you said, Lou, except you added some extra words in there that aren't necessary. I did. Yeah. I said long. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's true. Yeah, I, I don't actually like papers as a medium. Yeah, I agree. We should have more books. No, <laughs> no. Well, so I actually had papers are good, and I put underneath that, considering saying it instead, reading is good. Mm, Somebody mm. who shall remain nameless in our Slack was saying that they read 300 books a year and like 50 papers a week or something like that. Jack Russia. <laughs> Say the name three times and they'll appear on the show again. Jack Russia. Jack Russia. Jack Russia. Nice to see you, and Ivan, and Jimmy. Ah, looks like you're recording a podcast. Well, you know, I've got no time to stay and chat. I have to get back to my reading. I I had a wonderful conversation, uh, (laughs) very short conversation with Jack on, on our train ride, train jam, where he was like, what have you been reading? And I'm like, I don't read fiction. And I made the mistake of putting the word fiction in that sentence. Um... Yeah, I think that there are so many other ways that we can be communicating these subtle, nuanced, delicate, beautiful ideas to each other. And I'm very interested in exploring all the ones that don't involve reading. Stay tuned. Hopefully, if I have my druthers, I won't have my name on another Ink and Switch essay. (laughs) That is another also one of those like perennial themes of the show. I think we've made this public, but I'm very interested in finding works that we can do that aren't papers. And I would love to look for some non-paper things for us to talk about. So my second uh, one that I'm stealing is I want to denormalize sharing scrappy fiddles. <laughs> so yeah, so so uh, so uh, what was normalize sharing scrappy fiddles? That's the myth. Ah, um, uh, yeah. And the thing I want to say, there's I, no context for that for the listeners. <laughs> They're gonna go, what is that? What is that? So everybody who's listening to this should follow Lou on Mastodon um, because Lou has been recently doing this tremendous work where they say normalize sharing scrappy fiddles and then accompany that with a post of some thing that is a scrappy fiddle meeting a song or a little video demonstrating something some kind of work that is like rough and unpolished and unfinished and and the sort of thing that you'd normally be timid about sharing because you know oh it's just a little throwaway thing that's not worth sharing and and lou if i'm not mischaracterizing you you've been saying no share those things it is good to share them yes it's morally wrong not to share them <laughs> and i'm going to come in and say that it is uh it is harmful to share them because and i think this you know i'm i'm, I'm being a little bit glib here, um, I think it is actually good to share these kind of things. And I struggle a lot with sharing scrappy fiddles because I care too much about the attention economy and how limited everybody's attention spans are and how we should, you know, save our 
the attention that we generate for the things where it really matters and that we should only be putting things out into the world that are very deeply considered, I say on a rambly digressive podcast. So <laughs> that's myth number two. Can I counter your myth? One sentence. Yeah, you can counter my myth. Yes, please. I think it's more about being anti-gatekeeping. And sharing doesn't have to be online. It could be with someone in your who you're sitting next to or that you live with. It doesn't need to be taking someone's attention away. I think in music making and in the world of programming, there are a lot of elite clubs and people try to dissuade, uh, you know, newbies. So I guess my myth about like only an elite few can do programming language work. I don't think that's true. And, you know, when you post up some little bit of music you make online, sometimes you get some slightly negative feedback, <laughs> which can be slightly shocking for newbies. And But, you know, that's, that's the whole point of the normalized sharing Scrappy Fiddles movement is to try to, uh, I guess, bring these things to the forefront and have a bit of fun with it. Yeah, I think if nothing else, if it helps people learn how to give good positive feedback, that's a, that's a great value that we can do. It's like, hey, you sometimes don't need to tell other people what they should be doing differently if they're sharing a little precious idea out there. You don't need to say, your idea was not done properly. Here's the proper way to do ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you have another myth? I have two more. I'll keep them quick. The third one is uh, that programming is a job. And the fourth one <laughs> is, uh, so I can deal uh, by that. I mean that like, yeah, you, you're down with that, Jimmy. Yeah, I'm down with that. Um, I think, mm. uh, that like programming is a thing I was tempted to say, or that like programming is a thing that people do. Um, that's the myth. Whoa. That one I'm less. I'm not so sure about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the, the thought would be that programming, like if, if programmers were good at their job, then they would make programming go away. Like it would no longer exist uh, because we'd all just turn ourselves into vernacular programmers. The fact that there are people out there who are like, no, I like programming for programming's sake. Those people are bad and we should not be listening to their <laughs> podcasts. Um, uh-huh. I would say uh, so, very pointed. Do you know any of those? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very pointed accusation there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the fourth one is that um, I never do this kind of stuff. That's the fourth myth. What? Follow Lou on uh, Mastodon. <laughs> it's, uh, they are at Toad Pond. Follow them on YouTube at Toad Pond. Follow Jimmy mm -hmm. on Mastodon. Uh, Jimmy H. Miller. Um, follow Jimmy on Twitter because Jimmy's still on Twitter for some reason. I haven't posted on either for a very long time. So I just, yeah, I need to think of what I want to do with social media, but follow me on Mastodon at spiral ganglion, uh, or go to my website, Ivanish.ca, uh, back us on Patreon. Cause, uh, you know, we've got a lot of mouths to feed on this show now. Um, <laughs> please, my Lou, their microphone. It's so, it's fine. <laughs> it's so, it's so fine. Um, it's fine. <laughs> okay. The light in their room. Actually, no, actually the light is broken. I'm glad you noticed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah it's, I didn't notice, but... Oh, well, it's broken. You were complaining about it. Yeah, so. it's really dark in here. Yeah. Yes, uh, support us on, on Patreon uh, to get to get the bonus content that you crave. If you're the one person who we recorded liminal programming for, back us on, on Patreon and, uh, and then find out if you are, in fact, that person. <laughs> there, I did the thing that I don't do. And then uh, I guess we should end it the way that the paper ends things.
which is? Our myths should inspire us, but they should not hold us captive. Okay, but I actually don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, uh, I guess, I guess maybe it's because I'm not held captive by these things, mm. perhaps. Yeah, I, I think you're held captive by the myths that you don't recognize as being myths. That's the trick. Oh my god. If Mary Shaw has done her job, somebody out there didn't realize they were held captive by one of these myths, and now knowing that it's a myth, they're freed. So really, that's the lists that we should have come up with, or like, what are the what are the things you don't even realize are myths? Reminds me of Gary Bernhard's ideology talk. That's a good talk. Which is about very much the same sort of topic. I like that at the end he says closure's good, because I like closure, and I like that at the end of that talk he's like, yeah, closure's good. <laughs> But yeah, the idea here is that like myths aren't bad inherently. It's just when we don't realize that they are myths and everyone froze for me. Oh, cool. Um, Because my hotel internet probably cut out. Oh, and you froze for me. Yeah, you just froze for me. But we got the the final word. Yeah, there you are. Perfect timing. He's back. Are we back? You're back. Hello? 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, you all froze for me. One. Two. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, uh, I'm going to hit stop. Uh, you should both hit stop to save me from... One, two, three. Uh...